This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show the man known as Air Force Ken, Ken Corigliano. So in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics, and there are so many of them. This man's life story is incredible. From the immense childhood trauma and homelessness he experienced early in his life, his journey into the military, some of his mental, some of his educational and physical fails, the immense ownership that he took and forging an incredible path in his physical ability and his academics, the TBI that left him with synesthesia, the ability to taste and smell colors, for example, obstacle racing, quantum mathematics, leadership, social media and division, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Ken Corigliano. Enjoy. Well, Ken, I want to start by saying thank you to Brendan Quisenberry for connecting us, and I want to welcome you onto the Behind the Shield podcast today. Great. It is uh, it is an absolute honor, and I love the message, and I'm just a vehicle 
to help folks get to where they want to go. And uh, if my life story can be of any assistance, then um, my life's been worth it. So I really appreciate the opportunity here. Beautiful. Well, you have, I mean, to say you have an interesting life story, I think is a bit of an understatement. So I would love to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, that's uh, that's one I don't get often. But I was born in New York with uh, most of the rest of the Italians uh, in the very early 80s. And um, we moved down to Florida shortly after I was born because there was uh, some mafia stuff that was going on up there. And my dad said, I'm not raising a child in this environment. So we moved to Florida and um, he and my mom, they got when they got together, um, she brought in two boys, older brothers, much more, much older than I am. And then he brought in a older, um, a daughter. So, um, I had two brothers and a sister for most of my, um, upbringing and it was in Florida, which was not a bad gig as a kid. So whereabouts in Florida were you? So we were just South of Tampa in the Bradenton, Sarasota area. Okay. So that's about an hour and a half from where I'm sitting right now. That's right. Yes. So what about profession? What did your parents do? Sure. My dad was a, um, he was a tow truck, tow truck driver up in New York. And when he moved to Florida, he became a builder and he specialized in first time home buyers and even ran uh, Habitat for Humanity. He was actually the president at one point. And so um, my mom was, um, she ran kind of some of the business for him on like his model homes. And we lived, always lived in a model home. So everything had to be like immaculate, like all the time. So she ran that aspect of it. And then um, they got divorced when I was about 15, 16 time period. And that set into motion. My, my uh, very interesting part of the life story, I think. So, and then my sister passed away when I was about 17. Oh, what was Which it? Which was a major life event. So, yeah. What was it that took her life? So, uh, someone took her life, actually. So, they, um, they tried to slip her the date rape drug and gave her too much because obviously someone who does that's a moron and um, gave her too much. And so she died that night, thankfully in her sleep. Um, so, that's how that went. Oh, I'm so sorry. Did they ever catch the person that did that? No, nah, it was, you know, it was at the bar and just some random, you know, dude. So, no, but I'm sure karma caught up with yeah. that person. So, yeah. But um, actually, that's a very, uh, um, it was super important in my life because I was like, you know, 17. And at that, you know, people who are 17 think, you know, they're invincible and, you know, they probably have five or six years of real good memories, you know, and so um, they don't understand the finiteness of life. And so I discovered that very fast of like, oh, crap, I'm I'm mortal. People are mortal. And so I, I began to clean myself up because the two years from my my parents divorcing to that period, um, I was like homeless and just going through random places and um, hungry and you know, uh, that was a very traumatic part of my life. But when she passed, like something just clicked and I was like, I got to clean, I got to clean this up. Like, 
Is, do you do swearing on this show? I, I encourage swearing. This is a pro uh, swearing. I identify as I someone with really a potty mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I just, I was just like, I got, I got to get my life together. Like I can't, I can't live like this, you know? So going back a little bit, you talked about your dad being a tow truck driver. I think one of the less acknowledged areas when it comes to trauma and things that you've seen are the tow truck drivers, especially when they work on the freeways. So we respond as first responders, you know, we're cutting these poor people out, but usually there's a tow truck driver there with us. Sometimes they tow the body back to somewhere where they can do a police investigation or simply somewhere where we can actually extricate what's left of them. So did he ever talk about the dark side of the job when he was doing that? Yeah, so it's actually really interesting that you say that because just recently, I say about a month and a half ago, I started asking those questions where I guess like I didn't know that about that profession. But yeah, man, I mean, he has some crazy stories, especially like trying to tow people's cars who do not want to be towed. And this is like in Brooklyn and Bronx in the 80s, like... Man, that is not a nice area. So yeah, you got fights and all kinds of stuff and and bodies and yeah, man. And what's crazy is when he was um, in his teens, he worked on the World Trade Center. Yeah, teens, early 20s, he worked on the World Trade Center. And so like when that fell and I was in the Air Force, uh, that was... um, you know, a lot of those stories came out too, where, you know, he was sitting on, I don't know if you've seen the iconic picture of the dudes like eating lunch on the floating pylon, but that was him, you know? And then his dad did that on the empire state building, which was cool too. So, um, yeah, a lot of those stories have been, have been coming out now that he's a little bit older and he probably doesn't care, (laughs) you know? It's amazing. I mean, whether you're in a profession that will see trauma or whether you're not, the longer I've done this podcast, the more I realize how many people have trauma, especially in their earlier life. And we look at so many of the issues that we have. You know, you have the gang violence, you have the homelessness and the prostitution, but then you have the corporate greed and all these things. And if you reverse engineer, there's mental health challenges in pretty much all of those. It's more of you know evident and a homeless addict. But if you think about someone who runs a cigarette company, that they're able to sleep at night knowing that their product is killing people while they're getting wealthy, that's not a sound mind. You know, a good person wouldn't be able to sleep at night. So whether it's the politicians and the lawyers and the corporate owners or whether it's the, you know, the gangbangers and the prostitutes, we have a mental health crisis in this country. And it's amazing the more stories I hear, the more people that, you know, unpack their childhood. And yes, it might be an extreme, you know, event like sexual abuse, or it might be something, you know, seemingly lesser, but would equally as traumatic to that individual. Yeah, that is a, it's actually a really good segue to like what I, why I wrote this book that I wrote, but basically your nervous system predates anything else by millions of years. So it has an incredible head start. So it has functions in there that are built in that are like, if this thing happens, it does this, right? And you cannot, you cannot affect those things. And so I think what has happened in society is we've lost the knowledge that we come here equipped with everything we need to not only just survive, but to thrive as a person and as a social group. 
And so your nervous system, it has to exercise the fight, flight, and freeze mechanism every period during the circadian rhythm, which is every 24, 23 hours, whatever minutes, right? So basically every 24 hours, your body has to exercise the, the stress response, whether it is like, oh my God, my phone, you throw the phone, or this jerk just cut me off. What an a-hole. That's simply just a function of you not exercising your fight, flight, and freeze mechanism on purpose. And this is why people wake up and they work out because they're exercising that reflex in a controlled environment. And then they're able to be, you know, a little bit smoother during the course of the day. Now people get a little nuts where they actually work out and cause more stress. And then they're more pissed off right during the course of the day. And so those corporate people, I mean, you know, this mental health thing in the corporate folks is for me, we have just gone away from going internal for healing and going internal for guidance that we're just like, Hey, let me just pop this pill thing. It's going to do this magic. Not knowing that like 99% of the stuff that you put in your body is just telling your body to do something. It's like, you're not even doing anything in your body, your body's doing it. And so that's what I think um, about that. We've just, we're as a society, we've just fallen off the entire like organic mechanism or body you know we we've come here with everything we need you know i don't know if that makes sense to what you're saying no it does completely i want to get to the book absolutely um going back so obviously the the kind of divorce was a very traumatic element in your life talk to me about life prior to that first so what what were you playing as far as sports back then and what were you dreaming of becoming yeah so i had like two older you know but three older siblings. And then my mom's crazy, man. Like she, she brings in everybody. We had exchange students. We had homeless kids. I mean, we had kids from the streets and the, like, who, who is this? I don't know. They're here to eat. They, they need food. Okay. <laughs> all right. So, you know, at any given point, cousins, I mean, at any given point, we'd have 10 people in the home and it was just, it was awesome. You know, it was just like, talk about exclusion, you know, 40 years ago, you know, nobody, nobody really doing that. You know, my mom was like a, um, it's just like a saint, man. But anyway, and so like for that, it was all about like we're doing stuff, right? We weren't buying things or anything. We were just doing stuff. We'd go, we'd go camping, and 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 then everybody was welcome. And and you know, even when they divorced and we were poor, you know, my mom didn't want to take anything, and so we lived like in a ghetto. And, and like I had a lot of um, I was a minority in my high school, but we still brought kids, you know, like. Everybody was welcome at our house. We we have, you know, Mexican immigrants, African-Americans, you know, Central Americans, people from Brazil and like, what the hell? So that's how my upbringing was. It was happy, man. And it was a good home. And I had older siblings who really didn't care much about me. Like, you know, I was so young that they had their own thing. And so they left the house before I was even in like middle school, you know, like so they were just kind of way ahead of me. So I was kind of like an only child almost. Now, when you talk about the way that you were brought up, that reminds me of the farm that I grew up in. So my dad was a, a horse vet, a veterinarian. And so he, as far as his work, he you know would work with literally extended royal family and race horses all the way through to he'd do pro bono work for local travelers, gypsies, you know, and, and, and people that were just not able to pay. And the same thing. I mean, these these amazing personalities that walk through the door, and you could tell 
after an upbringing like that, there was two kinds of people, regardless of skin color, religion, you know, sexual orientation, nice people and assholes. That that was it. It doesn't matter if they're wealthy or poor or, you know, whatever. So that was a real kind of a beautiful way to, to, to teach a child about the world. What, what did you take away from your upbringing as you progressed through adult life? Yeah, so um, I think there's a couple different things, which is the first for my mom is like, it's an experiential life, right? You, you need to experience as much as you can because it, you know, she taught me like, if you go to any place on the planet for like two weeks, you get a bachelor's degree. You go there for a month, you get a master's degree in that. You know, you don't have to spend four years. And so experience and nature, like nature provides everything you need. You don't, you don't need anything else. And so I have this profound respect for nature and I always have in its creatures, you know, and my little kids, I got little kids and we just go, hey, you know, look at this flower. We smell everything that can be smelled. We touch, we, we go to the bark of the trees and we put our hands on there. We say, thank you, tree. We love you. And, you know, so I bring that to my kids. And then, you know, when they split up, my mom went on the road. She drove a truck to earn money for us. And so she was gone, man. And, you know, I had nowhere to go. I was anyway. And so that experience really made me relate to anybody. Like if someone comes to me and they're stressed out and, you know, you say like there's nice people in a-holes, really those a-holes are just nice people who are stressed, man. Like there's something that have just gotten to them and they've strayed. And so when I became an officer in the Air Force, um, I was a commander at one point of the flight of airmen. And I just I told the commander, I said, hey, man, just give me the worst. Give me all the flunkies and the PT failures and the people who are waiting to get kicked out. I'll take them. And I and I said, I'm going to make them. I'm, I'm going to be the best flight. And we, we were. We had the best tests, the best fitness everything because I could relate to them. I knew that they were going through. Cause I was like, Hey man, I'm just homeless. I had a 10 times worse than you and look at me now. So I brought that, you know, I brought that with me from, from all those experiences um, that I think is super powerful. So walk me through that. You're, you're with your parents, they divorce and my parents went through divorce about the same age. I was probably maybe a year or two older than you were. And it was a weird feeling because to me, once you get to your mid-teens, you're like, well, my parents are going to be together forever because they made yeah. it this this far. And it's absolute bullshit, of course, but that was my perception. So my world was kind of rocked. And then you realize that some of the marriage was a lie and you know everything just kind of explodes in your face. So to walk me through how that led you to homelessness. And then let's talk about that jarring uh, realization of mortality from losing your sister and then how that put you back on the path. Yeah, so... Um, you know, when they divorced, my mom was am amazing, man. First, she didn't say anything right about what happened. And so it's totally my dad's fault. Right. And I know you, everyone probably knows what happened. And so, um, she made me stay with him. And every time I left his house, she'd say, did you give him a hug and a kiss? And I'm like, no, man, I don't like him. I, I'm so, and she said, no, go inside. We're not going anywhere until you go in there, you give him a hug and a kiss. Because she knew that that's my dad and I needed to have a functional relationship with him. And so even today, man, like, you know, I'm mad at somebody or, or just frustrated. You, 
there is life is just, you know, life is really is infinite and you just can't burn those bridges. And so you really got to transcend a moment. Um, and that's what I learned at that point. And then when she left, she just got a, you know, a random house somewhere and, and I got kicked out of school, uh, within months of them separating, you know, like at 15, man, you go, I was a late bloomer. So I was going through puberty, you know, all this crap, happened, all these hormones. And then the house is disrupted. I got the, my older siblings are all they leave. Everyone's gone. And then and then it's just what the f you know, like, holy shit. So I actually got kicked out of school for throwing a kid out of a classroom window and almost burning the place down. I mean, it was just insane. So I went to the high school where my mom was. And then I didn't last long there either because she started going on the road and I got kicked out of that high school and I had to go live with my cousin and I didn't, I didn't really stay there often. So I was in the streets and like, I just, I remember one time like being on the side of the road and like being really fucking hungry, man. And just like, you don't know, I guarantee you most people don't know what hunger is, man. Like that shit. I felt that in survival school, you will eat anything. I don't care. You're vegan. You know, no, you'll eat. You'll rip that. You'll rip the head off of that animal. You will suck those eyeballs. Out, I guarantee you, like, <laughs> it doesn't matter, man. Like, so I remember feeling that and just like, oh, man, this, man, I never want this ever again. And, you know, and I think it was like a couple months. Yeah, it was a couple months later. My sister, that's when my sister died. And we're all there at the funeral. Everyone's you know, reunited all this stuff. And I just remember feeling her cold body, man. It's like, fuck, man, what is this? And I, it was just like, oh, you know, like I was just like convulsing. And and then it's just something just was like, what am I doing, man? Like, what am I doing with myself? I just got kicked out of the school again and shit. And and so my mom, when when Michelle died and, and you know, I got kicked out again, she's like, okay, she comes back from the road and we move to Fort Myers out of, cause I get kicked out of the County, man. Like the whole County kicked my ass out. You can't go to any of these schools. I flooded the whole school. Fuck it, man. Oh my God. It was, it was ridiculous. So, so we go to Fort Myers and they're like, okay, man, look, check it out. We don't deal with any of this shit. Okay. It was like a kind of a ritzy kind of, I just happened to be in the same neighborhood and my mom gets married to this dude, you know, he's making good money and everything. And, and they have nine classes that I can take in a day. And I'm like, you know what? I had a 1.8 GPA in that school took me. <laughs> like, we're not taking you. I have a GPA is like 3.5 here. And I was like, no, I've lost. This is the only place I go. So I'm like, fuck, I gotta, I gotta like make up, man. And so I just take nine classes. Give me all the classes. And I took like work classes and shit where I'm walk working at Office Depot until 1130 at night. And I get up and I'm at school at 6 a.m. the next day taking typing class. That's how old I am learning how to type. Microsoft publisher and shit, you know, like and and I get 4.0, man, that quarter. And then the next quarter I get a 4.0 and I'm like, shit. I'm going to graduate early. That's my goal. And I literally was able to go from two years behind to graduating early, six months early, which is kick ass. And I mean, just my whole universe changed, man. Oh, two months before my sister died, my recruiter, the recruiter shows up in the class that I get kicked out of. And he is beautiful, man. I mean, he is like tall, 
like big muscular dude and he's gorgeous. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I start like trashing him. Right. You know, because that's what you do when people are better than you when you're, when you're <laughs> you loser, tear them down. Right. You tear them down. When you're a loser, you tear people down. If you tear people down. You're loser mentality, people. OK. And so he just shut me down, man. He's like, well, what's your what's your life playing their hot shot? And I was like, I'm play football. He's like, oh, yeah, skinny white guy can play football. Oh, that's funny. And everyone just starts cracking up in the class. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa this is my class, bitches. And like nobody laughs at me, <laughs> you know. And, and then when when Michelle died, I went I, I went and saw him like the couple of weeks later. And I was like, hey, man. Uh, uh, you know, all up, hands up. I got I got to do something. And he's like, well, we want you, but we don't need you. I don't need people like you. I don't want you in my Air Force. And he, I was like, fuck, I thought you guys were dying for people. And he was like, I don't need you, man. I mean, I'll take you, but I, I don't need you. And and he taught me everything, man. He was like my dad. I mean, he's still my best friend to his dad. I just talked to him yesterday. I mean, it was 30, 20 something, 25 years ago. So all that, James, just kind of converted. I know that was a lot. I'm sorry, but no, there's a lot of shit that just kind of converged together. But that's why I love these early life questions. You know, there's so much gold in, you know, before we put the uniform on. This is the big part that we miss, whether it's just an interesting part of our life story or whether it's trying to figure out, for example, mental health struggles. If we're not talking about all the shit that happened to you for the first 18, 20 years, and we're like, no, Ken, it was that thing. When you, were, you know, when you were in the Middle East, it has to have been that. And you're like, it's fucking not working. We're missing, yeah. you know, you're, you lost your sister. You were homeless. Your parents divorced. I mean, these are all huge parts of someone's story. Yeah. It's emotional, man. But, you know, the next point, though, while we're on this is... Um, there's this there's this story that's like, hey, I'm a drunk because my dad was and then I don't touch alcohol because my dad was a drunk. Right. And so there can be trauma that occurs in your life. But the way you view it and categorize it can either destroy you or make you incredible. And so for me. Like. Right now, like I, the way I do my show is I ask people, like, what would you die for before you let happen? And it's phrased that way because it doesn't make sense and opens up their subconscious. You do what's called a pattern interrupt, right? And you're able to get into subconscious and stuff. And so I have to explain to them, like, what is a scenario that you will, before it occur, like you will die before you let it occur, right? And usually they give some vague response or whatever, and they have to hone it down. But for me is if anyone I care about or I know about in like I I develop empathy and love for, they will always have a place to stay in my house and they will always be fed. Like I have this crazy thing where there's shitloads of food in my house because I don't know, I might meet somebody who needs food, right? Because I remember that. I remember sitting on the side of the road and seeing someone eating McDonald's and like, fuck man, if I just give me a couple of pieces of French fry, I'll be okay. You know, this person's falling all over their face and I'm like, I would take any of those things dropping off your face right now. And for me, like it drives me, James, like I will never fail in my job. I will never fail. And my kids will they have more money in their account than I do. Like it just all goes in there because there, there's no way that they will ever be homeless or hungry, you know. And so all those experiences like drive me, man. Like I just wake up and I'm just there's no way I'm going to fail today, because if I fail today, 
I might, someone might be hungry. Like I might not afford food in my house or I might not have air conditioning in my house and it should be hot and people can't sleep. Right. So that's an important note. I think I'm sorry to interject, but like it drives me, man, you know, like unstoppable. You won't fucking outwheel me if I tap into that. You just won't. I'm sorry. Just won't. Well, don't apologize for interjections because I love them. So this is why these are long form conversations. <laughs> I want to walk you through into the military. But just before we do, I lost one of my friends, not my brother, but one of my friends from school when I was 18 in England, we graduated 16. So I'd been out for a year and a half or whatever it was. Random phone call to a mutual friend. He said, are you calling about Dave? I'm like, what do you mean about Dave? Find out he passes away, go to his funeral. And when the coffin went by, that was when I had the, oh shit, I'm going to die one mm. day moment. And it terrified me. And it took me a long time. I remember talking to a friend I went skiing with and he starts talking about Stephen Hawking's work. And it's like, yeah, there's no actual God, the universe. And you know, I'm like, oh God, well, that just made it even worse. now. <laughs> like I'm just yeah. going to be nothing anymore. And so it took me a long time to navigate my own beliefs and spirituality and all that kind of thing. But it terrified me. Did you have any semblance of that after your, your sister's death? Oh yeah, man. Like, like I probably wasn't clear, but what, man, when I touched that cold body, I, it was just like my neurons, just my entire brain just rewired where it's like, I can't, I can't end up like that. Like it, but the crazy part is somebody did that to her. She was a I man. She, she was beautiful and just, just an incredible person. Somebody did that to her where I'm doing this to myself, you know, and I'm, and I'm causing pain on other people. What a fucking, what a loser, you know, like, are you kidding me? And my, my, my recruiter called me a parasite, you know, like you're a parasite on society. What have you done for anybody? What do you, you want to come into the service? It's called service, Ken, you know, <laughs> Hey, hello. And I was like, this dude's right. Like I'm, I'm a parasite and yeah, man, like it, man, that's a hard pill to swallow too, you know, like, and it was like, okay, either I can just like devolve into shit, but then I'll end up like my sister out of my own volition. And my parents got to sit there and look at me and go, what a waste. Like, oh my God. Huh. I mean, hell no. Like that was just stupid. Like I, I was like, nope. Everything I'm going to direct all this destructive energy into construction and I'm going to kick some ass, you know. So did 9-11 happen right before you enlisted or was it after? No, it was after okay. I had been in two years. So walk me through your journey into the military and then and then obviously we'll, we'll get to that point. Yeah, so. Uh, even though I was going, I was in Fort Myers, I was driving every week up to Bradenton. It was about an hour and a half to go to my recruiter. And he was teaching me everything, man. He's like, look, yeah, get your dumb ass in shape. Okay. You got to learn some crap. I cheated my ass off on the ASVAB. I don't care. What are you going to do? Kick me. I got 20 years in the service. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I admit we cheated. I mean, we had like six of us. I mean, our school was so ghetto, dude. Nobody cared. Like six of us were taking a test and anyway. And so like I was dumb and he was like, you got to get undumb. You got to get in shape. You got to learn how to succeed in basic training. So he taught me all these tricks, how to fold my clothes all in advance. And it was like a year and a half, man. I was in the delayed enlistment program learning just how to not be stupid and succeed. 
And so when I got in, I was set up for success, you know, and I was driven too, man. Like, like, I'm like, this is not, I am not going to fail. I'm going to go in there and I'm just, it's just like, I'm a machine. And so my, my recruiter said, look, this is, this is reality. You got to choose the absolute dirtiest, worst job in the entire air force, because that's all you're good for. And and there's going to be a reason for this. And years from now, you're going to thank me. And so I was like, okay. So when I was there, I was like, what's the dirtiest, grossest, you know, most unthankful job ever. And they're like, yeah, mechanic. And I was like, okay, shit. My dad works on cars and stuff. So let's do it. So they, I was an aircraft mechanic when I came in and it was awesome, dude. The crazy part is I had a really good boss, man. Like he was awesome. And he was like, Ken, look, check it out. Nobody reads books. Nobody reads the, the regulations in the laws. Nobody does. It. Nobody cares about it. Even the people who are in charge of that stuff that the book is about, they don't read the regulations. Okay. And so he made me read like all the Air Force regulations and instructions and all the tech data about the plane. I mean, this is a bad, this is before computers, people. And so like there was a huge library that would even rotate four corners of each side and inside and everything. And there's books this big. And I read all of them, some of them multiple times. I knew more about that plane. And so I learned the uh, importance of being prepared and everything. I had a big backpack at all kinds of shit, light bulbs, screws, zip ties, everything. And man, I tell you what, if I was on the job, people were like, no, Ken has it. He's whatever it is. He has it. <laughs> so my first stint in the air force was like, be prepared and like be the guy that if shit goes down, be the dude. Right. And that will set up into our next, in our next conversation, wherever you want to go. Yeah, no, let's, let's carry on. All right. So nine 11 happened and it just so happens the airplane that I was a crew chief on was an infiltration and exfiltration aircraft designed to go behind denied enemy lines and insert special operations forces to gain territory. Okay. So it's MC 130E. And so where did the bad guys live? Afghanistan. Did we own anything? No. All the all of the countries around Afghanistan, not our friend. And so we we flew out to a country called Uzbekistan. And um, we staged out and it was like a six to eight hour flight and we would pack dudes in the back and we would fly these dudes all the way into Afghanistan, land in a dirt field and like offload dudes. And they would try to take airfields and like, man, it was crazy. And on two missions, um, I remember before 9-11 happened, I was over in this electronic countermeasure shop and I was like, hey, can you can you guys like just train me on shit that would could go wrong and like, you know, how I would fix it. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we got this coolant thing that shoots down missiles, you know? And uh, this, a common thing is if it's used a lot, like it, you know, the bellows will start leaking and this is how you do it. And I'm like, oh, okay. So like fast forward, like a year and a half later, you know, September 11th happens. I'm in, I'm in Uzbekistan in the, and this thing happens, like all this coolant starts flowing everywhere. And I'm like, oh shit, I know how to fix this. <laughs> it's all over <laughs> me. Cause I was, I was actually sleeping underneath it. And I'm like, oh, I know how to fix this. So I'm like, gosh, I took all my clothes off. I'm shoving it inside the, inside the bellows. People are like, oh, cause it was all like petroleum and shit. And so like, um, when the mission was all done, you know, I, they, they were, people were clapping when we landed and everything because, um, 
uh, we had to land under fire and get these guys out. And they instantly came off the airplane and got into a firefight, which was awesome to watch, you know. And then like a couple weeks later, uh, my dad's birthday, we're flying, we're flying in there. And then the liquid oxygen starts to like deplete like big time. And we land and there was a firefight off the nose and I get out of the airplane. I go in there, I stick my hand in this giant like snowball of liquid oxygen is like negative 800 degrees. It's insane. So I'm like going in there and I take a good guess just based on my knowledge of the system on what could, you know, be loose. And I get my hands in there, tighten it and I fix it, man. We fly back. And the flight is so long that they call the so the special operations command commander and they're like, hey, this dude two times like saved the mission. And they're like, well, let's let's commission him. <laughs> and they're like, he doesn't have a degree. <laughs> and they're like, okay, well, send him to school, find a program. And by the time I landed, they had already done all of the paperwork, got it signed by the four-star commander and approved me to go uh, become an officer with a four-year scholarship to a university of my choice anywhere in the world. It's pretty cool. That's amazing. So so I know there's an interesting story about finding that school too. So walk me through that, and then we'll get to the ROTC physical test. Yeah, sure, man. So back in the day, people, okay, we didn't have cell phones and stuff, all right? Matter of fact, we didn't have like satellites or internet phones or anything. So I, our primitive internet, which was mainly like porn and dating sites, you know, <laughs> I I was Googling like college Florida and I got a bunch of these numbers. And what we had to do back in the day is we had to call the base operator and the base operator was an actual human, if you can imagine. And they go, base operator, hello. Like, hey, I need an outside line. I, I'm, I'm trying to call with a calling card. And be like, okay, what's the calling card number? Okay, 1-800-585-3611, whatever. And so, okay, well, when they, when they pick up, you got to put your card number in. And remember, back in the day, the card number is like 20 friggin' digits. So the phone I'm, I'm on is a satellite phone. And it has an eight-second delay because it goes up and comes down and all this crap. It's not instant like today. We don't have Zoom. And so... What would happen though, the connection was so crappy that I'd be pressing buttons and one of the buttons wouldn't like go through. So it was common practice for us to have to try like for a half an hour to get the number through and then dial the number and then do it all and everything. And so, so many times, um, you know, the number wouldn't go through, but then people would answer the phone, go, hello, hello, and then hang up after two seconds, like, fuck, there's an eight second delay. So we all got in the habit of like, as soon as we pushed the last digit of the calling card number, uh, of the phone number that the calling card would call, we'd go, hey, this is blah, blah, blah. Can you please hold on? It has an eight second delay. And so I was like, hey, this is this is Airman Ken Crigliano. I'm in Afghanistan and I got an officer scholarship and I need a school to go to. Please don't hang up. <laughs> and this is like in the summer of 2020. Uh, uh, oh, my God. 2002. And so schools in the summer had the B team on there. And so. You know, dude would be like, oh, Afghanistan. Okay, hold on. Let me transfer you international students. Like, no, God damn it. And so it was it was impossible. And then by the time I got to my GPA, oh, what's your high school GPA, sir? Um, like 2.3. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> and so <laughs> so finally I got to school St. Leo. I doubt I get num the numbers didn't go through. So I'm just like pushing random digits to just see if I can get some guy's dorm or something and transfer me. And so I accidentally dial the president. The president picks up. He's like, help. And I was like, hey, I was there very quickly. He's like, this is, are you military hero guy? You're trying to get in school. Okay, hold on. And so he transfers me to his assistant. Like, hey, sign this guy up for first class. 
And it was easy like that. It was like, you don't, you don't want my GPA or a transcript? They're like, nah, don't worry about any of that crap. We're a private school. We do whatever we want. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, great, dude. And it was like two days before they were going to turn off my uh, my ROTC commission if I didn't get a school. Because <laughs> I ran through like 10 schools, dude. None of them wanted me. <laughs> or they hung up. So what was that experience like? You You went from doing rather poorly in school initially to finishing six months ahead to memorizing uh, manuals now you're actually in a structured rotc program so walk me through that and then and then tell me about your initial physical fitness yeah so so when i was an airman i was just like lifting weights and crap and i started running just like a little bit you know when i was in uzbekistan all we had was treadmills and a couple weights and so um, when I got accepted to ROTC, yeah, I, I left like a war that people didn't even know happened. I'm like at St. Leo, they're like, what war? What are you talking about? I'm like, are you kidding me right now? You don't know where I war, you idiot. And so it was it was like going. It was very traumatic, actually, because these college people are clueless. Not only do I I'm older than them by three or four years, but I'm at war. Just got back from war. And then like. um Going into where the ROTC program where I had cadets who were in charge of me, by the way. And I was like, who the hell are you talking to like that? And they're like, cadet, I am cadet first class and you will listen to what I say. And I'm like, kiss my ass. And they're like, you got to take that medal off. You got to let it wear. And I'm like, bullshit. Like, I got this. Medal. So it was like there was a lot of um, roughness at first. And then we had the, the fitness test which we got, we got like 60 days to train for it. Meanwhile, they're paying the tuition at my school, which is a private school is very expensive. And so um, I go out there and I can't even run a half a mile. And I'm like, Oh shit. Like, this is not good. I, and the test back then was two miles and you can't stop. You just can't stop. And so I have two miles, I'm walking and they're like, Oh, and so they, discharge me from being active in the program to being on like parole or whatever. And then they sue my ass for like a hundred G's for the tuition back. And I'm like, I just got a medal of heroism, an air medal, like a combat commission. And you assholes are like suing me and kicking me out of the program. Are you? And that's how I realized, James, that was another lesson of like, people don't give a shit. The bureaucracy they don't care about you and they don't care about what you did. They only care about where you're going and what you're doing. And that was a big lesson for me also, like, be prepared. And so I was like, you know what? I can either go down the hole being a victim again, right? Or I can get motivated, energized, and kick some ass. And I left that. My name is still on the wall on that bitch as the PT uh, record holder 20 years later. So, so walk me through that. You can't, <laughs> so you can't run half a mile. You've got a sounds like the bar was set pretty low. Just not stop for two miles. Real, uh, real, you know, selecting excellence there. But how did you go from you know not even meeting the standards to leaving such a high standard that it's still unbeaten today? Yeah. So I think it has a lot to do with mentality, and so I believe now. That if you have a set mentality and you're like, this is going to happen. God and the universe just starts orienting stuff to give you the building blocks. 
And so at that moment where I'm like, no, man, like you can't take this away. What an embarrassment to go from like hero to zero. Like, no, no. Mm -mm. So I go to St. Leo, which, by the way, is like an hour drive every day. I had to drive the stupid ROTC an hour. Sorry, I didn't mean to be disrespectful. But at that point, I thought it was stupid. And so I go, I'm like, OK, can I like not drive here every day? And they're like, yeah, if you do an NCAA sport, you can not come here one day. And I was like, Whoa, OK, so I go to St. Leo. I'm like, what sport can I just walk on to? And they're like, running. All you need is a pair of shoes. <laughs> so I'm like, OK. <laughs> So I show up for cross country and the coach happens to be two-time Olympic developmental coach of the year, Kyle Sage, who just happened to take a job here because his mom lived nearby and she was sick and he was there going to take care of her for a while. And so he's like, oh, if I'm going to be here, I might as well just get a job. You know, I got to pay the bills. And so he just gets a job as a cross country coach and I'm like, holy cow. So my first practice, I don't even run a half a mile. And he's like, uh, yeah, I don't know if this relationship's going to work out. <laughs> <laughs> but he had all the knowledge and skills to make us badasses. And so I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, what do you want to do with this? You just want to run around and save a day? And I was like, no, man, like I want to I want to see what I can do. I want to see what this this vehicle could do, babe. So, yeah, I mean, that was what coincidence that was, man. So you start a half a mile, though. Walk me through the physical slash mental journey that you took to reach the pinnacle in that sport. Yeah. So um, I took what I learned from my boss, Bill Russo, which said he said, look, get into the tech data and just know, know the specifications. And so what I did was I was like, well, what are the best runners in the world do? And I was reading. And at that time, like YouTube, like kind of like videos were coming out, you know, on the internet and shit. And I was like watching them and going, okay, well, let me do that. And I bought cameras, you know, and I put them on next to the treadmill and I would run. And then I would, I would look at me, look at them. And I was just like, I was doing tech data on a plane, just like, okay, this needs to look like this. And, and then I would tell the coach like, Hey man, you know, right. If you're going to ride the bike right next to me. Like, forget these other guys who are running sub six minute pace, you know, like focus on me, man. Like sit right here and tell and coach me. And he would just feet up, shit up, lean forward. Okay. Breathe out of here, you know, belly breathe, all this stuff. And so I just demanded it. Like I needed this instant feedback and then I created it like in myself and I had him build training programs. And I was like, no, man, like, let's see if you can break me. Let's do it. You know, like, let's do it all. And, and it was crazy, man. Like the training was nuts, man. We were running like 10 miles and shit. Like I was like, and it was crazy is like, what I would do is go, I'd go, okay, I'm going to stay with these guys until I just die. And so these dudes would just go fucking, they would be gone, man. And they're warming up. And I'm like, <laughs> and I like running with them. Like, okay. I pass out and I'd look at the ground and go, okay, right here. I'm going to get past this point tomorrow. When we come out here tomorrow, I just all I care about is just getting past this point. And I just did that for my whole life. When we started doing triathlon a couple years later, get in the pool and go, I'm going to go and I just make a note. Okay, I died at 300 yards. Tomorrow I'm going to do 325. Like, that's just my goal. That's all I care about. And that's that's how I got better was just I just tried to do a little bit more each time. So what did you run the two mile in the end? Oh, well, they changed it to a mile and a half. But yeah, I'll sub eight minutes, homie. Beautiful. 
And my two minute push ups was a one like 125, and my sit ups were like 130. Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely meeting the expectations. <laughs> I was like, if man, if I'm gonna do this, I might as well just destroy it, you know. So you touched on triathlon. You you find yourself in that world. Talk to me about again the journey into that, and then the uh, traffic accident that changed your life. Yeah. So at St. Leo, I was actually, um, I was crushing it, man. Like I was like, you know, the universe gave me this commission, gave me this scholarship. Kids are out there drinking and shit. Like I didn't do any of that, man. Like I studied my ass off. I worked hard. I did the cross country and I didn't mess around, man. I studied as hard as I could. I got almost, almost all A's and which was crazy, man. Um, but so I, I was very, like I just felt honored and I didn't want to waste any moment at all. And so um, I was nominated to become a gubernatorial fellow as an undergrad. I was, I was one of the only undergrads ever to have, have um, been applied for it. And it was the first year of it. It was Governor Jeb Bush. And my president was like, no, Jeb, he's a friend of Jeb's. He's like, no, Jeb, you got to pick this dude. Like he's, he's got a great story. It'd be good for you, blah, blah, blah. And so I got a fellowship up in um, F at FSU and I was working for the governor. And at that point, um, we could take any class at FSU that we wanted or Florida A&M because the governor is going to pay for it. And I'm like, OK, I'll take triathlon class, like whatever. You know, I can't get on the FSU running team. That was a different level. OK, so so that's my intro to triathlon. And then Kyle you know, always had us kind of like swim, run in the water and stuff. And then we did some cycling for cross training. But this is when I got serious And our first practice. Like I couldn't even swim across the pool. And I remember this coach, man, like he pissed me off. I get I went and I was hanging on the side like this. And he's like, Ken, you guys give up, man. You just give up. And I was 25 at this point. Right. And he's like, Ken, you got to give up, man. You're never. And I get I get out of the pool and I have muscles. I have, you know, nice belly and, you know, I'm, I'm muscular. And I'm like, I get these. I see these people get out of the pool. I'm like, these people only have muscles and they're kicking my ass. Like, what is this? I'm looking at them like, what is this? I'm way stronger than them. And he's like, do they have 10 years, 10,000 hours? You'll never be as good as them. And I look I looked at him and I was like. I'm going to fuck. I'm going to like I'm going to kill you and all of your team. And like I got in that pool every single day and I did the same thing. Video. And I picked uh, Alexander Popov, who kind of looked like me. And I was like, I kind of look like him. My arms kind of move like him. So I just emulated him every single day. And I just started kicking ass in the pool. And I kicked everybody's ass in the first triathlon we did a couple months. Only a couple months later, Red Hills Triathlon, I kicked the entire FSU swim team's ass out of the water, including him, the coach. So I was like, yeah, rocking and rolling. I, need I don't a new know if coach. I answered your question. <laughs> you did. <laughs> well, he served this purpose, right? The universe brought me someone who speaks my language of like, you can't do this, Ken. If he was like, oh, you just try a little bit harder, I probably wouldn't have done anything. But he he just lit a fire in me, you know, by this terminology. So you're training now in triathlon and then there's, a, there's an accident. So talk to me about that oh. and walk me through the recovery. Yeah, so I commission... I'm out of college for years, okay? And I remember being in school in like 2006. I was just about to graduate. And I told my class, I was like, hey, I'm going to the Olympics, too. And everyone's laughing because they're like, can you just learn how to swim? Can you suck? 
Like you suck, Ken. There's no, you know, and I'm like, no, I'm going, I don't care about you. And so um, I'm in the Air Force now and I'm training. I'm like, I'm single. I'm making money. Like, this is great. And so I'm like, hey, I'm not doing anything else with my life. So I just start training hard. And I'm like hard, big time. Like I'm riding like 50, 60, 70 miles. I'm running 10, 20 miles and all this stuff. And I really get into swimming because I'm like, man, this sucks. Like if I'm going to be good at something, I might as well be good at something that people hate so I can really crush it. And I got to be an insanely good swimmer to where I was like beating the swim teams that I was swimming with at Catholic University of America. I was coaching there. And anyway, and so... I get good enough to where I'm actually at the Olympics as a liaison and I'm in line after the triathlon and it's a big ass line. And there's a lot of Chinese people in China, man. I mean, there's a lot of people in Beijing and a lot of folks show up to these showed up to these events and there's just a huge line. I just happen to be like number two. And this dude who clearly is like as a white dude, kind of tall dude. And I'm like, Hey man, you look like you're like American or something. He's like, yeah, I'm American. I'm like, hey, you want to butt in line? And he's like, oh, dude, I would love that. So he butts in. I'm like, hey, so who are you? Whatever. He is president of USA Triathlon. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, hey, you know, let me show you my times. Would you write me a letter of recommendation to uh, the world class athlete program and say that you would give me a slot on the um, Olympic trials? And he's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, it was amazing. So yeah, he he wrote me a letter and um, that the year I'm supposed to try out, I get deployment orders because obviously I'm still in the Air Force and I go down to Florida the couple, a week or two before the deployment and I try to do St. Anthony's Triathlon in the day, the second day I'm there, man, I get I get mowed down by a car and it's bad. Like I, I get dragged across the windshield, the whole entire roof, caves in the windshield breaks apart across my back it took six years to get all the glass and metal out of my butt in my back the antenna goes through my arm and like it's crazy man i hit my head and then i fall and she stops and i fly off into the gravel i hit the gravel and my head hits it and i'm done man like i'm in heaven like i see the pearly gates i see my whole life you know, flashing before my eyes, all this stuff. And my body's just fucked. And I remember flying through the air and seeing pieces of my bike. And I'm like, man, I'm going to have to buy a new bike before next weekend. <laughs> so I can do this straight. I mean, see, like, it took 10 minutes to fly through the air. <laughs> you know, like mentally, it's so crazy how that works. But yeah, man, like my whole, I was, I was hosed and I'm sitting in the hospital for hours and it's like 10 o'clock at night now in this, this lady comes in, a state trooper, and she is like short, but she's in charge, big hat and everything. She's like, hey, are you Ken Crigliano? Uh, uh-huh. She's like, I went to the morgue to find you, man. I thought you were dead. There's no way someone survived that because they towed the car away. And she's like, well, are you messed up? And I was like, uh, they said I didn't break any bones. I'm like, he's like, that's crazy. And so and that's how I knew like how bad it was. But uh the doctor was like hey man no more you're not gonna be trained i was like hey can i do the race next weekend <laughs> he's like I made a no. new bike. <laughs> oh. he's like he, he i don't think you're gonna be able to walk again buddy like you are really trashed and i was like who the hell are you talking to man and all i saw was that coach from fsu and i was like no man you don't tell me what to do i'm walking the hell out of here tonight and he's like that's not physically possible and i took two steps 
I walked off of the walker and I got into the car. And that's how I knew like, no, nah, this is going to be okay. So I was not, I was trashed. And I still had to deploy, by the way. So yeah, so a few months later, you're in Iraq, is that right, this time? A few days later. A few days later, right. okay. <clears throat> so walk me through yeah. that. Um, you know, you've had, obviously, clearly a massive TBI. So apart from the, the bruising and everything else that comes along with it, now you're around, I'm assuming, you know, um, concussive waves from explosions and, uh, you know, from the rifles, etc. So what was that deployment like compared to, you know, the one that you had prior? Yeah, so this is awful. And so um, I was I was embedded with a special operations task force that included a team of SEALs, uh, Rangers and other snake eater dudes. And so what we were in charge what we were in charge of doing is finding extremely high value targets. These are these are people who claim to be Iraqi political appointees and such, but were really uh, bad guys. And so through you know our forensic abilities, you know, in the military and intelligence community, uh, we were able to discover these people, and uh, we would bag these fucking people up. It was very politically sensitive, and so um, that was. Uh, a very difficult mission in of itself for anybody. And then I'm there and I don't even know who I am. Like, I can't remember shit. Like I was writing things on my arm and like, I mean, it was awful. And I, my, my memory was probably like a, a couple hours long, you know? And so every day was just like this new thing. Um, and the army guys, um, vast majority of them, not, not really helpful. I mean, very uh, disrespectful, um, did not care about what I had gone through and frankly felt kind of slighted that the air force sent him this, this turd. Right. And so, uh, I got, you know, I thought I was going to get shot. I mean, it was crazy. Like, um, it was very, very traumatic from an emotional standpoint, in addition to shit blowing up outside, you know, and like getting underneath my bed and wondering if I'm going to get, you know, my arm's going to blow off. And so it was, uh, I couldn't imagine a worse, situation other than being a prisoner of war after a traumatic brain injury because the brain is healing at that point you know and i think what saved me was i was getting into brain training the the six months before that accident i started going okay i need to start training my brain and i learned about neuroplasticity and all this crazy stuff about the brain so i actually got to watch myself kind of go through it and that that helped me stay a little bit more aware and you know like less of like totally useless and so i was able to get by um but it was it was ugly man they they actually arrested me there because um it was just a some drama with the one of the navy kids there that he he accused him of sexual harassment and and all this stuff and i stood up for him and oh man it was off it was absolutely i haven't told this story publicly before but it, i mean it was um it was a very tragic situation that I was dealt um, and it was not helpful. <laughs> and I had a, a brain injury. So yeah, it was, it was bad. So I want to walk through, you know, from there forward, but just while we do, this is probably a good time to ask this question. Any, we, I preface this question by the way that news is uh, hold on, I'm tripping over my tongue. Hold on. Let me write mm -hmm. that down. For fuck's sake. 
57. So I want to just ask a question that I ask anyone who was deployed into a combat zone. Um, The reason behind this question is the civilians of the world, especially in in the US, we get a very polarized view of war, especially early on. There's a lot of propaganda, etc. And so there's either the very one would argue right wing kill them all that god sort them out there's the left wing they're all baby killers and then you have the men and women or children basically that we send over to fight for our country who actually you know are seeing what they actually see so two-part question the first part whether it was afghanistan initially whether it was iraq later was there a point regardless of the politics behind why you were deployed there that you witnessed atrocities that you realize there were some horrific people that did need to be removed. Oh, oh, um, yeah, man. So like my upbringing, and it was interesting you asking all these questions. Like I just knew inherently people were good. I mean, my mom was a saint. We brought in all these people, you know, we fed them all this stuff. But when we took the Taliban and Al Qaeda prisoner was the first time that I was like, these people are evil. Like this is evil. And I've never experienced, and I'm getting goosebumps as I say this because like we would have the plane full of these guys and we, you know, we all, I will tell you America is noble. I don't give a shit what you say. We, we really, really try our best when we fail. We're just, we're just stupid. We just, we're just stupid sometimes. But we do really try to do our best. And we would give these guys, hey, look, man, you know, you just got to quit Al-Qaeda and Taliban and then we'll let you go. And I remember this one time, man, where the dude was like, if you let me go, I'm going to go to America. I'm going to find your family. I'm going to kill all of your family. And I'm going to hang them on the power lines and shit. And I, I was like, what do you do with that? And it was crazy, man. And I was just like, this motherfucker needs to be, needs to be dead. Like you can't do anything about that. I don't know if you can rehab that. Like, that's crazy to me to respond like that. And so, yes, man, I felt, I felt that evilness. And in Iraq, you know, I didn't feel the same. Like I, I just, there was, there was bad guys there, but a lot of them was like, this is my home. And like, I'm defending my home. I don't know who the hell y'all are. And so there was a lot of that um, of just like people just trying to survive, you know, and we wrecked that country. I mean, I mean, we blew up a lot of shit. And so and there's a lot of culture differences between Al Qaeda, Taliban, you know, those ethnic groups and the Iraqi kind of culture. And so there's a lot of culture misunderstandings. But yes, man, I mean. Uh, yeah, it was uh, a sobering experience to know. And I carry that today. Like there are people out there that will do my family harm. And I take every single precaution to protect what I have built from those evildoers or or maybe just misguided people. Right. And I don't care, man. Like I know I have people who are super liberal in like my family and shit. And I'm like, you don't, you don't see what I, not all people are welcome. I don't care what sign you have on your little front yard, but, uh, I don't see people in your home. Okay. You don't see you're opening your home to all these people. Okay. There are people that will do you harm because they just don't know. They just don't know better. And so like, you know, for me, I protect what I have built 
but I'm, I'm very inclusive to other people, but I know that there's some evildoers out there, man. Yeah. Well, I think it's important that we hear that. And one thing that I hear over and over again is how the, the people within the American military really did, a lot of them really did try and do the right thing, be ethical, follow, you know, the, the codes and, and that kind of thing. That's why I asked the other side of the question, because we don't really hear that either. Kindness and compassion amidst a war zone. So we paint the media, not me, paints an entire nation as evildoers when we're at war. So right now, all Russians are evil, according to pretty much every media outlet. Whereas the reality is, like every other war, you've got a bunch of shitbags in a country that are not only fighting us, but they're oppressing their own people. So talk to me about kind of stories of kindness and compassion that came out, whether it was men and women in uniform or whether it was the people that you were there to protect. Yeah, man. I mean... um I don't have a lot of that with my particular experiences, but I I know that my plane in Afghanistan carried lots of care stuff, medicine. I mean, even like exercise equipment, you know, like just all kinds of stuff that we were just sending in because people just needed it. And it's a challenge, man. Like you show up to a village that doesn't know what electricity is. I mean, like, wh what do you do? I mean, I, I, running water, clean water, and you hand them a water bottle? They don't even know what that is. You know, how, how do you, how do you, con and they're touching the plastic, they never felt plastic. I mean, like, holy crap, dude. And so, like, you have good intention, but then the application of it, you didn't really think that through because you just don't know. And so, you know, that's a challenge. That I saw that, you know, and then in Iraq, man, like, just trying to, teach them to protect their own country when they're like, no, you guys are going to leave. Like I got to keep this other door open. Like, you know, like these guys over here, I know you're fighting them and I'm supposed to fight them too. But when you guys leave, I still got to live here, you know? So, so I saw a lot of like, we would rotate in and out and we're just like, yeah, we know that you've got to live here, man. Like, look, we're just, and I saw a lot of like, hey, I'm just here to do my job. Like I'm deployed here. I, I'm stuck here for six months. This is what I'm supposed to do. And so I think there were, you know, a lot of maybe less traction that we occurred in that country was because of like, we're just like, what are we, you know, we're just here. We're just trying to survive too. So everyone's just trying to survive. And I saw a lot of, you know, building infrastructure, bringing electricity, clean water and stuff. And that's pretty cool. But the problem is that's not the Department of Defense's job. You know, like we're not, that's not our skill set. Our skill set is uh, we quote, you know, kill people and break things, right? And so here we are trying to deliver fresh water to places. Like there's only a few people that know how to do that. And so there's a lot of challenges with that, man. But I, I definitely saw both sides of humanity, uh, especially when people got hurt. You know, and like the there would be there's a special sound that when they needed blood, they would make the sound. And then everyone, you know, they'd say what kind of blood type they would need. And then if you had that, man, you would just run over to the, you know, over to that tent and be like, Oh yeah, I'm A positive. Let's go. You know. So that's pretty cool. So just staying on this subject before we move back to your TBI journey, you kind of touched on something about, you know, um, administrations etc the red tape it's interesting hearing men and women in uniform now you know we're not in iraq we're not in afghanistan any you know 
known um, uh, area at least. But when I talk about the healthcare system in this country and I contrast it to national health that I grew up with in England, even though it's not a perfect system and I would argue that my people are getting less healthy and they're ironically trying to privatize it and I think that's the reason. When you have a healthcare system that is based on tax, the goal is to make people as healthy as possible so you don't use that big pot of money that everyone's bought into. So now you can take care of the young, the old, the infirm, etc. Moving to America, when you have a profit-based healthcare system, there's no money in dead people and there's no money in healthy people. And lo and behold, sodas, fast food, inactivity, etc., etc., is encouraged, you know, and we have a pill for every ill here. When you contrast that to the military, for me being a civilian and having just a white belt perspective on this whole thing, I can't help but think that it's the same kind of pull to get back into another war when there are many, many companies that make billions of dollars every time our men and women are sent to fight. So with that, you know, kind of perspective, what are your thoughts on the the industrial military complex and the checks and balances to make sure that we don't send our children to fight unless it's absolutely necessary? Sure. And of course, I, you know, um, I'm not an official spokesman. I got to be careful on a lot of things, uh, but I am a citizen. I am entitled to my own opinion. But um, so for me, and this is just my experience, is that um, it, the healthcare is very hard problem. And I, I learned this actually when I was a fellow with Jeb Bush, because the bill that that state pays to do healthcare is the biggest bill they've ever had. It's the biggest bill they have. And that's why Florida didn't shut down for COVID because way more people would have died because of the lack of tax money would not be going to elder care there. Uh, for everyone who wants to poo-poo that state, they kept a lot of people alive by keeping the state open. But so it's a very, it's a protracted problem. Now, this is my experience is when you have government, government running things, you run into the problem of um, that the employees are not incentivized to go further beyond because no matter what, if if Ken doesn't show up for work tomorrow, I'm still getting paid. I could be like, oh, I feel so sick <laughs> and not show up. I could be playing video games and I'm still getting a paycheck. Now, the clerk who's at my grocery store, if they go <laughs> and play video games, they don't get paid. And so when you have a medical person, you know, in a for-profit entity, they are incentivized, uh, depending on their where they're at, to do more and to be more and to provide customer service and to follow up and all that stuff. They're incentivized, not saying they do, but government service, you're not incentivized. So for the, no, I don't want to say majority, for more people than I care to have experienced, the if they can create a less demand signal for whatever it is they are responsible for, their life is better. Now, why would I incentivize if I'm in the med military medical system to have people coming into my office? It causes more pain for me. I would rather not have any customers. And so what you have is a demotivated healthcare system that is absolutely, in Ken's opinion, totally broke. 
and is focused on just getting people. It's just, it's, I call it the appointment machine. It's just like, oh, we have these appointments. Let's just turn through. I get, I, I timed it one day. I got 90 seconds with my healthcare provider the other day. 90 seconds. Can you imagine? And they're supposed to accurately diagnose something that I've lived with for years. Like, I know better than you, buddy. And they're like, no, 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 that's not right here. Here's this thing. Like, it's bullshit. So it's broke. Now, the problem with a for-profit system is that now it's a subscription program. And so now you know, they and the rest of the world has caught on to the subscription scam where it's like, man, the only way that I can monetize people is to make them spend more or make them spend more often. And so if I can just keep them coming back by going, oh, you can only do one diagnosis at a time, which is bullshit, by the way. Oh, I'll just make more appointments. Then I get to charge an appointment fee. I get to charge how much time I allocated for you. And then I'm making all this money. And I'm not really solving your problem. Keep come back to me next week or whatever. And so both systems are totally messed up. And you will never be able to execute a government healthcare system in America because we have an entire for-profit machine that is fueling the healthcare system that is like prescription is really a subscription, people. That is exactly what it is. And you're getting screwed by all these pills that really don't really do shit. It's your body doing it anyway. So this is the most heated thing in my entire life because I spent 10 years in this shitty system trying to fix my brain injury when no one gave a shit. And you know what's worse too is they don't talk to each other. I'm in the government. Why would I care about reading the notes of the podiatrist when I am a neurosurgeon? It can't be possibly related. We have two different systems. Do you realize my whole body is intact? Like the thing that happens over here is related to the thing that happens down there, which is related to what's going on in here. But do you have a doctor who does it all? No, you don't. And our general practitioners in the military are, oh my God, they have 2,000 patients. They don't know who the hell I am half the time. I was just here last week. Oh, what did we talk about? You didn't read the notes before you came to see me? No, I got 90 seconds with you. Oh, that's great. Well, good. Waste my time. And so, sorry, I hope. Oh, and then the whole defense system. I mean, I mean, that's like, what is that? The number three entire industry in, in the entire country is the defense support industry. And so, hell yeah, we're incentivized to have the next battle. And here's the next thing. Here, here's the thing that people need to understand is Afghanistan happened in 2002, people. It is 2023. The military pension system is a 20-year program. And so there are people who are retiring right now who only know war. That's not reality, people. I had two years of what the military was. Actually, 2005 is when, when the Rumsfeld and everybody started privatizing everything and broke the military, just broke it. It's no, it doesn't have anything close to what it used to be when I came in. Uh, and I mean, we're just, it's just this machine of contracts and contracts and contracts. And so, yeah, man, we're not doing something like we better figure out, you better find someone to poke, to poke point at so that we can buy the next thing. And that's just, that's crazy to me, man. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your perspective. And actually, when we get to AI, I want to ask you about something someone told me about the future of medicine and how we can actually make better time of the physician by using that to do diagnosis before they walk through the door. <laughs> but uh, but yeah. I think that this is uh, this is an important conversation because it's 
I always refer to that um, clip from the newsroom, the show, where he's in a university and it's a group of politicians, I think. Um, I forget exactly because I didn't watch the show itself, just that clip over and over <laughs> again. But anyway, they're basically asked, why is America, why do you think that America is the greatest country in the world? And a couple of this, you know, mouthpieces, oh, because of this, this and this. And then I think it's Jeff Daniels' character goes, we're not. And everyone gasps. And then he, you know, reads off education, healthcare, et cetera. And he said, we used to be, we can be again, but, and this is it, is that we have to have these conversations, not bitching, but pulling them out into the, into the spotlight and saying, look, this is broken. We need to fix this. I mean, drug prohibition, epic fucking failure, you know, right on the heels of alcohol prohibition, which is an epic failure. So there's all these things that have created so much death and destruction. And yet, I mean, look at now, we have all these shootings going on in our country and people are bitching about transgenders on Bud Light pans. This is the yeah. level of distraction and division that we've got, that you would rather talk about the model on a shitty beer than the fact that our children are dying in our schools. Yeah, or, or our schools are just like the the levels of competency in them are just utterly absurd. You know, I actually respect what you guys are doing over there. You can't graduate elementary school kids into, unless they can code. You know, like coding, you know, anyway. Yeah, our our education system, again, is plagued by like government employees, right, who are not incentivized. And my my wife is an elementary school teacher. So like I am very for me, kids like I will die for kids, man. You know, like they are the future and we need to take care of them. And I mean, we don't we are not doing if we can turn out a vaccine in like a year. okay. Uh, and build battleships, all right, and all this cool technology that I know about, and we're giving, like, my wife has to spend, I'm not kidding, it is a double-digit percentage of her paycheck on stuff in the classroom because the school board is just, they. I don't know what they're doing over there. They don't know what they're doing. Like, hey, let's give a kindergarten kid a laptop instead of, like, how about you get him some books or some other stuff, you know, like, to help him out, maybe, you know maybe some other type of expenditures, you know, my wife has to go and buy all the shit. And this is all the teachers in America, you know, either they just like, I'm not incentive. I make $48,000 a year. Are you kidding me? I'm not going to spend 5,000 bucks on school supplies that the damn school should be paying for. And so that's another a problem, you know, that we have to deal with is churning out kids that have standards that are like this low. And the problem is James, this is the problem is we have the standards that are here. Right. And then there are families like I believe that we are where it's like, no, son, we don't meet standards. We push ourselves into the brink of brink of failure. So when you fail, you know what you can control or not control. The most important thing in your life is to know what you can control and what you can't control. And to be only concerned about the things that you can control. And if you don't fail, you don't know that. And we're not incentivizing our these kids to fail it's like oh my god no <laughs> let's just make sure we just push them to the next grade so they don't feel bad about themselves no man hell no and what happens is the kids who are who are just like right here they don't get any opportunities because they're just they, they don't know they don't know the world they haven't failed they're not they haven't built that confidence from failure and then you have my kids who are going to be up here because I have instilled pain and suffering on them of failure and pushing them 
and making them study and making them do extra stuff. And then that's the income gap, brother, is is these kids in the families that are just meeting the standard thinking that's well, that's all society ex- expects of me. Meanwhile, they can't even pay their bills, especially with the the inflation that's happening. And that's a problem, man. You, we need to we need to step it up. I had a, a guy, Passy Salberg, who's from Finland, and he was originally a teacher in Finland and became an advocate for the Finnish school system. And then now he lives in Australia and he travels the world talking about it. But when you look at the charts of the best educational system on the planet, Finland's usually number one. And yep. when you listen to what they do, it's just common sense. They don't have standardized testing. They look at the child holistically. They invest in the areas that are poorer that maybe have less parental support, etc., rather than penalize them for having poorer FSA scores or whatever it is. So it's just common sense. But they're not training them to be worker bees. They're actually nurturing the child and empowering them to be creative, to be, you know, and, and their their academic scores are off the charts compared to ours. We have this kind of, you know, train them for the factories mentality from Victorian times and look what it's done. That's right. Henry Ford, man. I tell people about the story. Like that guy was devious, man. Created the assembly line, gave people a day off so they go drive their cars. They have to buy a car. And I mean, our entire society is this is this assembly line. You know, it's just an assembly. I sit down, shut up. Don't talk. Don't, hey, you're daydreaming. Get your eyes on the paper. No, man. Are you kidding me? You know what Jeff Bezos does most of the days? He, he daydreams. That's how you come up with good ideas. That's how you plan. You know, what's the quote? You give me six hours to cut down a tree. I'm going to spend five hours sharpening the blade. We don't teach that in class. No, man. Show your work. I think that's the dumbest thing on the planet. Show your work. And they're teaching long division. Are you kidding me? Teach coding, teach teach how to do it in one hundredth of the time and not take five minutes to show your work. Who cares? All, all we care about is getting it done and, and doing it in an expeditious way so you can get on and do something else. Yeah, man. I mean, like that's and teaching to the test. That's all these people are doing, man. They're just like, oh, shit, I got to teach the test because, you know, what? I'm going to get graded against how many of these kids pass. So I'm just no, 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 Jimmy. Just look at look at question. Look at answer B. Check that. Check answer B out. You know, it's like, are you kidding me right now? That's not. That's why I love sports, man. Look, check it out. You don't you don't beat that dude. Get your ass kicked. You know where you're at. Hey, I get it. I come on the start line. James, I come on the start line. I look over here. Look over here. I have a pretty good guess of where I'm going to be, you know, because you're going to get your ass. You didn't put in the work. You know where you're at school. It's like you have no idea. Like everyone's everyone's first place. And so it doesn't, you know, not only do people and kids not know how to calibrate and know where they're at, but they don't know how to get to where the top is. You know, they don't know. They don't know the 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 juice of the squeeze of suffering. You know what I mean? If that makes sense. No, it does. In fact, I'm actually very, very proud of um, both my boys. One um, did not enjoy high school at all, but he's become an apprentice mechanic and is thriving in that that profession, which is a trade school, which is what I was in, firefighter, paramedic. Mm-hmm. But then my youngest little boy, he ironically went to, they call it Hope, I think, was supposed to be PE, like two or three mm-hmm. weeks in. He's like, Dad, I'm doing JROTC. And I was like, oh, okay. He's like, yeah, I did PE and we didn't do anything. He said, we just watched you know, videos and PowerPoint presentations. Yeah. So I was like, sweet. So 
he's a couple years into that now and he's you know got, he's an XO I think in that program and then he's joined the cross and track team just like 15 he runs like a five minute mile at the moment he's got two years of school left and this but this <laughs> cool. is like again like he grew up watching his dad work and and exercise but it wasn't me going oh i'm gonna live vicariously through my child it's amazing how when you walk the walk they you know not all of them but some of them will go i think i'm gonna go and find my own suffering and i pick him up you know after running in a hundred degree florida weather with a thousand percent humidity <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, then he's doing ice baths and telling me how small his balls are now. And I'm like, this awesome, beautiful, you know. So I think this is it. But so kudos to the people in these schools that actually create these other programs. Kudos to these teachers that despite the shitty system they got to work in, still find a way of teaching. Because there are some phenomenal teachers out there, but the system, just like the way we elect these fucking awful human beings for president at the moment, is completely broken. Yeah, man. Um I think, and that's that's the tragedy of this is people will send their kids to school. And I had this long conversation with my wife on like a 10 mile run one day. Um, and I'm like, hey, you know, like people will send their kids to school because it's required and they're not going to do anything more because if if the state requires you to do something, your brain automatically assumes that, hey, this is all I need. Like if, if I'm required to do this, you're going to give me everything I need to succeed. And unfortunately, this is not how it is. And um, we're very short sighted, especially as Americans. We kind of live in a moment. And for you can't you can't succeed as an athlete to live in a moment. You never you never push hard. You'd be like, oh, shit, this sucks. I'm not doing this. I don't I don't understand that. If I suffer today, a year from now, I'm going to do really well. We, we, we don't teach that. We don't. That's not part of school curriculum. It's just like, hey, today is today and you got to do this test. And, you know, that's it. And for my kids, it's like, no, man, like, check it out. You're going to get in this ice bath and it's going to you're going to feel good after this. And it's going to it's going to be worth the time. And my kid will go in like 40 degree water, 30 something degree water at five years old. He's in there for five minutes, you know, and we try to instill like, hey, you put in the pain, you put in the time right now and there'll be benefit down the line. And that's why that's why I really encourage sports for people because they have to understand that the pain today will equal something like way down the line. You know what I mean? Yeah. They don't. Yeah, man. And that's, you got to teach that for your kids, man. And if you're just a person and you're sending them to school and you're not educated in that and you don't watch these podcasts, you know, and I tell you, honestly, like, you know, I'm starting to befriend some of these more famous folks, you know, like they don't speak the way that people need can understand. I mean, I watch Huberman and I'm like, Jesus, man, you need a PhD to hear to like fully understand everything he's saying. Like my mom barely graduated high school. She, how is she going to benefit from all this stuff out there? You got to talk regular. You got to talk regular to people. Otherwise you're just in increasing that, that knowledge gap and the income gap for people. Yeah, I agree completely. And I think that's, that's why I love these conversations. You know, I am, not educated enough to you know blind people with my vocabulary and scientific knowledge you know i just barely scrape through but i think that's a superpower you know enough to have an articulate conversation you know enough and hopefully are humble enough to ask real experts about their work but you ask it in a way that you know people can understand we don't need to to know the the deep science behind it talk to me you know like like i'm eight 
and it's it's amazing if you can if you can explain as I say if you can explain to a child your concepts and you truly have a grasp of what you're talking about yeah that's right and that's a that is a superpower man because it's lazy in my opinion to speak at a high level and use big words and all that other nonsense if you could take someone who hasn't graduated high school and you can teach him the skills of mental visualization focus and self-care and and stress principles i mean that's a that's a superpower right there man and you're actually healing society that way because people are walking around like you when we introduced the the episode here man like people are stressed man i mean we have all this sophisticated technology and crap doesn't matter we are we are so stressed right now because we think all this technology and all these pills and all this nonsense is the solution was like no you need to shut up you need to get in your head you need to meditate you need to visualize and you need to just breathe and everything will get better you know? absolutely absolutely i mean that was the key for so many of my lowest points was simply that now i want to get back on your healing journey so you have this TBE, TBE, TBI, excuse me. You're in Iraq. Walk, to, walk me through that kind of healing journey and at what point you discovered uh, synesthesia, if I got that word right. Yeah. So um, for many years, uh, the point was only six months. Uh, I didn't feel my body. Uh, I couldn't feel it, um, which was actually really helpful for training. <laughs> but I still trained in Baghdad. I, I tried to run. I swam in this little pool that we had that was like 10 feet long. I just tied myself to the corner and I just swam in place. I even put, I even stole a mirror from Saddam's mansion. <laughs> I stole a mirror and put it at the bottom of the pool so I could see myself swim. So I, I, still, I was still training there. And so that was healing for me is to move my body. Cause what I didn't realize was that um, I, had, I still had a lot of dysfunction and tightness. Like I, I was like this. And I was grinding like my teeth and I was just really tight. And when I was running or swimming or biking, I, everything just felt better. And so I just kept my body moving a lot. And that was, I guess, part of the healing process. But it took me years to start to figure out what was going on. When I came back, I couldn't sleep. I think I went about six years with sleeping 40 minutes at a time. Uh, did a sleep test. And I was waking up every 30, 40 minutes and my arms were going numb. Like I had the like, restriction of blood flow and my hair was falling out. And like, I couldn't, man, it was just, it was so bad. Um, and the healthcare system was just terrible. Like I just go in and I'd be like, hey, you know, I, I just, can you guys turn the lights off? I was very sensitive to the light with the brain injury. And, and they're like, well, hey, we'll give you glasses prescription like no can you just solve the problem this shit i didn't have this shit last year like two years ago like what are you guys doing solve the please just solve the problem and everyone just wanted to like just kind of like solve the symptom and what happened was i got so desperate um i, I started getting very emotional i lost my ability to read and I couldn't, I couldn't read things. And as an officer in the military, that is disastrous. And I kept getting in trouble because of these regulations and everything um, and filing things. And I would just do everything wrong. Um, and I just remember where I was like, uh, like I have to do something. And, and so I would, I was flying out to Vegas to go to the consumer electronic show and I would go to the international area to see all the brain stuff like, or sleep stuff. And I was buying everything I could do. I was doing as 
I, I was trying everything. And in the middle of the convention, the big section of the convention is 100,000 people. It's crazy. Drones flying around, 500 TVs. Oh, crazy mayhem. There's people sleeping in the middle of the convention. I'm like, what the hell is this? And there's these special little chairs. I walk over and this dude who is um, Clint Eastwood, not Clint Eastwood, but Chuck Norris's double sitting next to me. I'm like, oh, shit. And he's like, hey, what's going on? I'm like, what, what are these people sleeping? He's like, this is new calm. It's a neuroacoustic technology. It turns off your stress response. I'm like, shit, I need me some of this, man. And I told him my story. He's like, oh, I know the CEO. So he brings me over. He's like, hey, Jim, come here. Hey, this is one of our heroes. He got traumatic brain injury. And Jim's like, okay. And there's a line of 300 people trying to get a nap in the middle of all this chaos. And he brings right to the front. And six or seven years, seven or eight years, Maybe, yeah, seven or eight years, I hadn't had a damn dream because I just didn't go long enough into REM to get sleep or to get to dream. And so I dreamt and I was like, oh, my God, this is incredible. And so it's a neuroacoustic technology. Jim actually just talked to him today, best friend. And it's it brought my stress response down without medication and that's when my body started to start healing and I started feeling my body. And that's when all the pain started to come where I was feeling the pain in my S my SEM from clinching. I could, I could feel myself grinding and I, I felt my arms and that's when shit started to like kind of unravel. And that's when training got a little bit harder too, because I was feeling issues. And then I started to address them going to physical therapy and all this stuff. And then other things would occur and that, even though that, that saved my life mentally, like my memory started healing for the first time. And like, I was centered and I wasn't screaming and yelling and getting pissed at people, <laughs> which is a very common side effect of brain injury and PTS. Uh, so that began like the, a lot of the healing protocol. And then I could like remember in and understand things better and apply them. And I remember just hated the, I hated the bed. And my poor wife, she had put up with me, but I was just like, I'm not getting this fucking bed, man. And I bought like a $5,000 bed thinking it was going to like help me. Like, oh, this is a great bed. And I did everything, man. I did everything. Everything that's in there, online, whatever. I did it all. And you can't do it if you're stressed, man. You know, you got to de-stress. So I hope that answers the question. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. So from that point then with the new calm did you start getting better and better quality sleep because you're talking to a an audience that has that i'll sleep when i'm dead mentality but we don't realize the acute and chronic side effects of sleep deprivation is why we die in droves okay. okay so let me drop a nugget and you can bookmark this section right here which is if you you have a couple modes of existence Okay, that your nervous system, which we said is millions of years more advanced than your brain. Okay, your nervous system began in your skin, then it created the heart, and they created the brain, uh, your gut, your heart, brain, whatever. So, if you know the hierarchy of order in your nervous system, you can understand how it communicates to you. Now, your body only has so many nutrients and so much blood and so much electrical activity that it can use at a time, okay? And so if you are if you are stressed, you're not really stressed. Your body is in a threatened, heightened state of awareness, and it requires a lot of energy and attention. 
And if you think about you can't do one, you can't do two things at once. You just you just can't do it. Even though you think you can, you just kind of switch really fast. So your body, can, your, your existence can only focus on one thing. If you're stressed, your body is ready to survive. And so it shuts down all these other processes. And if you carry that into sleep to where you're lying down, but you're thinking of like, oh, I'm going to get blown up or like this thing is going on in my life and you view it as a life threatening situation because you're a service member or you're a first responder and you view everything as life threatening because it's just the mode that you're in, your body's not going to heal and it's going to accumulate lots and lots of debt, which is physical debt and electrical debt where it's not going to heal the electrical pathways that your body takes to send signals not going to heal those things and they will start to decay and even take other routes instead. And so if you are going to trying to sleep and you're in a threatened mode, which is we call fight, flight and freeze, which people might be familiar with, you, it won't work. So you have to first address what is the stress. And once you do that, your body will feel safe enough. Now, remember, if you're sleeping, you're totally defenseless. If you're out in the middle of the fucking jungle and you try to go sleep, you're not going to sleep. You're going to wake up every 40 to 45 minutes to protect yourself. Your, your body's going to go, okay, I'm going to go into REM sleep. I'm going to repair a little bit of electricity. I'm going to wake my, make my guy up, make sure there's no spiders on him or bugs or bacteria. Nobody cares about the bear example. That's a stupid example ever. It's bugs and shit that kill you. And your skin, if you think about it, you can feel a pin on your skin, a, a pin it takes a lot of blood sugar and electrical activity to ensure that if a bug lands on you, you can feel it. That's a lot of energy. There's this phrase called the basal metabolic rate, which is basically if you just did nothing all day, how many calories would you burn? It's all almost entirely of keeping your skin innervated so you can feel your environment, making sure you can smell danger or food, hear danger. It's keeping all that stuff prime. Now you go to sleep, all that shit turns off. So it's just going to keep waking you up, waking you up, waking you up if you're stressed and you're going to get terrible sleep. And then after a while, you can live like that for a while. But after a while, you will decay. You will, your entire body will get destroyed. And here's the thing. At the time where you start to persistently live stressed, your body views you as a threat to society or your nervous systems view you as a threat to the rest of society. So it starts to turn you into an asshole. So people will not be around you because you're susceptible to infection, right? You're in a fight, flight, or freeze. So you, your nervous system is going, okay, something's chasing me. I've got to tell all these people to get away from me because something is around me or whatever. Something's happening with me and you will start to be a total asshole to everybody else because you're going to push them away. Your nervous system's pushing them away. It's the same thing of when you're sick and your, your bones start to ache. It's your nervous system doing that on purpose. So you lie down so your body can shut down and it can address the, the, the invasion, you know, the bacteria or the virus or the fungus or whatever it is. Your nervous system has all these cool little tricks, but we just don't know what the hell is going on. So that was the first thing was address the stress. And then the byproduct is your sleep will get better. But you have to address the, that mechanism that you're being protected, that's protecting your body. That makes sense? No, it does completely. And it's so beautiful when I hear different perspectives from the same message, which is 
we need to deregulate our nervous system and we need to sleep. And we're in the fire service especially. We have yet to, as a profession, understand that we need to rethink the way that we do our work week. We work our responders into the ground. 56 hours on a minimum, 80 plus hours when they're short staffed. It's it's absolute fucking insanity. So the more of these layers that I can bring, these you know, more of these different perspectives and, and great minds, the more hopefully we'll get that critical mass of people will finally understand, look, this is the nucleus of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. So you have this uh you know this kind of journey that you've had with the tbi you're seeking help medically you're not feeling your body now your body's screaming at you when did you start to realize that your senses were doing something they'd never done before oh yeah i mean it was um shortly after iraq where i i was like holy shit what is going on um so what was happening is as when I came back and I and my brain started to kind of decycle down from the stressors, I was noticing that like it was first taste, like someone would say banana and I would taste it. And then I started seeing it. And then if it made a sound, I would hear it. And it just started kind of like manifesting. And so what what people need to know is your senses, your nervous system do does not mess around with your senses. It if something gets affected or degraded, your your nervous systems will, will take different wires, different pathways through your brain or your body. And that's why some people like when they're stressed, like, you know, do like this. It's just the pathways that your nervous system is choosing to execute and send the signal. So when my brain got all messed up, the connections between the, the electrical are they floating. And so when it gets jarred up, sometimes they're not completely aligned and that, that signal won't go through. And so my nervous system was like, well, okay, we we have to use senses, so we're going to do something. And so just the way that I got hit, the area that was in good was my visual cortex, my my visual processing area of my brain. And so it started wiring a lot of stuff through my my senses, the pathways of my senses were being mixed up because those were the pathways that were available. And so when when, you know, I hear something it tries to make sense of it and it just shoots all of the senses at once just because I, it wants me to know what is going on uh, or what someone's talking about or whatever's in front of me. And so what was really cool was I was watching that, but it's really distracting because like people would tell me, would be talking to me and I'd be like, wait, what would you say? I had no idea what the hell they just said. Is there they any nouns? If people know what nouns are, the person, place, or thing. So anything that you can see or hear or touch, or whatever is a noun. And so anytime someone said a noun, I was like, <laughs> so very, very distracting. And couple that with not being able to read. And then every time I'd read, I'd see the damn see everything and touch it and feel it. And I mean, it was just an utter disaster. So what I started doing is going into numbers and data because you don't see those things. They're all fake. By the way, math is totally made up, people. So uh, I was just going into like data and I wouldn't have to deal with people. I would look at data and I'd be doing things. And I was really good in visual, creating visualizations from data. And that's when shit in my career started like 
getting very interesting. 2013, I was rocking and rolling on stuff. And I just happened before my accident be, was on the Google Earth developmental team. So I helped develop Google Earth. And so when my brain started doing all this crazy stuff, I was like, oh, I can do some cool shit on Earth. And so I was visualizing things when ISIL took Mosul. I created this unbelievable Google Earth thing that had like 7,000 feeds and it was incredible. Um, and I was like one of my big, my first big like usage of my skill, my skill set. So I know you talked about the keynote speech on quantum science. So you, again, going back, didn't seem to excel younger when it came to math. Talk to me about that shift. Now you're now the the world of numbers is becoming a place that you can focus this unique gift. Where does that take you in the mathematical world or the, or the physics world? Yeah. So what was happening is that I was dive, diving into numbers. I was they were using my senses, and so I could taste numbers. And taste is very interesting because um, your smell is your first line of defense, and that's it goes straight to your memories. It's the only sense that goes straight to your, has direct access to your memories. That's how I smell. When you smell something, you're like, oh, you get an instant visual. Your taste is the next step. And it's very, very sensitive. And texture, all that stuff can determine if something's going to kill you. And so my taste was just on off the charts. So I would see numbers and I would taste the relationships between them. And then sometimes I would feel it, uh, the relationship, and then I would see it. And so... Like there's like, you know, you have the Fibonacci sequence and Sylvegia numbers and all these things that probably nobody knows about, but there's some really elegant math stuff that's in the universe. Um, I started seeing the relationships between these things. And then I was visualizing them in my head. And at a point, there was a point where I could look at numbers and see the relationships between them uh, and how like one thing affected the other because I could taste the you know, you, you can, you can taste, you can right now, if I ask people to taste a honeycomb, a uh, honeycomb, a honey crisp apple, and then taste a gala apple, they would be able to taste that in their heads and then go, okay, what, how much of them are similar? You'd be like, that's probably like a 30% t taste of those apples are similar. And so I could taste the similarities between numbers. And then it started to extrapolate between cause and effect on anything. So I was getting into like the brain, how the brain was caused, you know, things would affect the nervous system and then, and then like training and fitness. And like, my brain was just sort of kind of like showing very four dimensional advanced relationships between cause and effect on stuff. And in my particular career feels various, very helpful because I could find information that was seemingly unrelated, but just go, no, no, no. I taste something very similar with these two things. There's something here and then dive down into it or even task assets to go in and go, hey, I think there's something else on here. You need to just kind of like go down a little bit more because I, I, something just doesn't taste right. And so I was like, you know, remember my story on like getting the best athletes in the world and looking at them. I was like, well, what's the hardest math on the planet? And I just went to Google and it was like quantum. And I was like, oh, what's that? And so that I like took to a duck in water, man. Holy cow, probability. So the big thing with quantum math is like all probability, which is all possibility of things occurring. And so my brain was just like, oh my God, I can see the atoms. 
I can see how they vibrate and resonate and quantum math and probabilities. And I was just like, holy shit. And then, and then what's really cool is I can scale out years. So I'm like, okay, if we do this for long enough, it will bring us here. It's just like, if I can, if I can run on the track at this pace and then increase it by 10%, I could run a five, I could run a five minute mile in seven months. Right. I mean, your son's doing that, right? Run a five minute mile. He knows how he got there and he just scales it to, Oh, what would it take to do a four minute mile? Right. So my brain was doing that with like quantum math and, and other things. And I was like, dude, if we studied quantum computing and we were able to scale to this many qubits, shit, man, I think we could like design this kind of material that would do this kind of thing. And like the math, the math would come out. Like I would check it with people and they'd be like, yeah, that's actually like, that would be very interesting. And people ask me, you know, what are the possibilities of quantum computing, quantum encryption, and all that other shit. And my brain, like I can do that. And I'm just like, dude, you need, and this is what got me on the president's AI council is when I see AI and I see what's happening with it, I can scale it and go, okay, if we spend maybe like this much money and this much time, we can get this output and then it would do this for society. For society. And that brings us back to your introduction to this part, which is what, you know, what can AI and quantum do to society? Uh, man, I'm all over that, man. Like I can, I can just see, I can taste it. It's incredible. Like very vivid for me. So I want to I want to unpack that in a second. Just one tangent. I had Emily Kaplan on the show, and she works with Greg Glassman now. But she has a thing called the um, oh my goodness, it, it just fell out of my head what it's called now. But basically, they're questioning some of the principles behind some of the scientific studies that people quote. So you know ironclad-esque when i mean we saw it obviously the last couple of years oh this is definitely gonna 100 gonna work and 50 percent gonna work and this virus will kill you and all this stuff and so there is as some absolutes of course or some perceived absolutes when it comes to science but i think there's an abuse of what science actually does and, and basically to to kind of um to paraphrase what she was saying is a lot of science is probability. And when you actually break it down, it's not as conclusive as most people think it is. So with you having this incredible background in math, you'd be the perfect person to kind of just take that concept and run with it. Absolutely. It's one of my most favorite topics because, um, you know, I was in college before all this stuff. I was a political science major and my master's degrees in political science, international relations. And so like, I have a pretty good understanding of the human element. I actually specialize in like personality management, leadership personality. Um, and so like, I know that when you deal with these topics, that there is this human element that is like, oh yeah, we, AI could be doing all this, but it's not politically going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Right. Just like the healthcare system. We could, we could solve a lot of these problems right? We need a holistic doctor, right? And we need like an hour with you like every six months. But politically, you're never going to get that, right? I mean, there's just so many influences on it. And I can see the influences. You know, I can I can see the people in Congress. I can I can see the money flowing back and forth. And it's like, okay, what, it was, what will it take to, to push against that tidal wave? You know, it would take this much, right? And I can see that in my head. And so, yeah, when you talk about like the probability, uh, you know, of maths, you know, in science, and it's just like, Science is just shit repeated over and over again that they just start to accept, you know? And it's like, how many years ago were doctors on TV smoking cigarettes? Like, you can kiss my ass. I don't, 
first off, anyone can get a doctorate. And I have actually gone through the entire Harvard medical school program, by the way. And there ain't shit in there that is helpful unless you're prescribing medication, my friends. And that is Harvard. And I did the entire curriculum. And there is not one single thing about nutrition or stress response regulation modulation in the entire friggin' curriculum. Okay. It is like MDSM or MDSM medical. Oh shit. I'm awful. But the medical standard that basically says you can prescribe this for this type of diagnosis. I mean, that's it people. Okay. That's what you're dealing with. So, you know, what a valuable perspective, like I said, and it's, it's interesting because this is the resounding element. And again, just for teachers, there are some incredible physicians, but if you're, baseline for them is 99% pharmacology and 1% you might spend a day seeing about some exercise, nutrition, and sleep. What message is that sending? How is that preparing someone to truly critically think and get to the nucleus of a problem? So most of our physicians are set up for failure from the moment they leave school. That's right. And so like, you know, I don't want to bash what's going on, but I just want people to know what you're dealing with. And so like, don't, for me, I think it's a lost cause going to a doctor think they're going to heal you, right? For me, I for me, I go to a doctor because I want their cool shit, right? And so like, hey, man, I need an fMRI. Well, what do you need fMRI for? And then I, I have learned to speak their language because I've read the medical manual and it's like, well, I think I have this. And I tell you what, like, there's almost no proof you need to provide anyone for anything because all... <laughs> Almost all symptoms are what's called psychosomatic, which is the brain just makes it up. Because if you go rewind a little bit, okay, go back to where I said that your nervous system is super sophisticated. It sends you messages. And almost every symptom that doctors have to diagnose is your body just creating it. It's making it up. And so if you understand that, uh, you can not only like use that to your advantage, but you can listen to those messages. So for me, when I go to the doctor, I'm like, I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, okay, I know that that's a pull, right? I, I pulled that ligament. I just need to know where it's at so I can build my healing protocol and my workout plan. That's all I need you for. But I'll go in there. I think I broke my foot and something's really messed up. I'm like, oh, we got to do an x-ray. I know that no one's going to give me an MRI unless they do an x-ray. Okay. So I'll do the stupid x-ray. And they're like, no, nothing's broken. I'm like, no, it's really painful. I can barely walk on it. Well, we should definitely get an MRI, Ken. Oh, yeah, that's what I said six weeks ago when I came in here. So I get the MRI and then, they, they, you know, I get the image. I look at it and I go, okay. And then I send it to my my physical trainer who I make sure knows how to read these images. And I go, this is the problem. She goes, okay, these are the workouts we got to do. And that's how I use the medical community. That's it. And so for me, I make it work for me, but I'm not going in there <laughs> with the illusion that they are not only have the time, energy, equipment, desire to fit to fix me. Um, I just go in knowing that I can use them for X, Y, Z, you know. So I want to get to the AI, but just before we do, because a, a topic that I almost missed, and uh, you know, we've been talking for almost two hours now. But like I said, you have <laughs> such an amazing insane. story. Um, you also were able to create excellence not only academically and using your mind in that sense, but also in the physical realm. So talk to me how this post-TBI mind-body connection allowed you to function at a high level physically and just kind of touch on some of the the um, accomplishments that you've had in the physical side. 
Sure. So I think it's very important to uh, just do 60 seconds on my near-death experience. So when I got hit, my my entire body just started convulsing. I, I, it was just, it was gone. I was done. Uh, it was very hard hit. And I lit, I just came out of my body and I went up and I was like, okay, man, you know, this is it. I'm fucked, right? This is how I'm going out. And um Oh, thank God I hurt. I'm out. And, um, and this just massive force just hit me in the chest and like right here in the chakra right here and just say, you are not done and just kind of push me down. But as I'm doing that, I see all these videos in my life of all the people that I interacted with that I gave them advice or I just said something that made their day that just changed their entire life trajectory from this way to this way. And I got to watch their entire life change, even into the future. And I have confirmed this by still calling these people and going, hey, I saw this 20 years ago or 10 years ago. And I, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I did that. Okay, good. Well, that, that was legit. And so today I know that when I go out, like I'm going to watch that again. And so at any moment in time, I'm like, I got to rack up some videos. You know, like I'm going to do something nice and do something nice for somebody and just forget about it. And I have no, no expectation to return. So that's a driving factor. And so when we talk about like your question, wait, I'm going to go back to your question because I got off on a tangent. What was your question? We were talking about after that, after, um, you know, near-death experience, I mean, you're kind of tying into it. So the video, so how did that allow you to then train at such a high level that you, oh. and then, and then talk to me about some of the accomplishments that you actually racked up. Yeah, sure, man. So like after that, I was like, first I knew I was mortal again. It was just like as another reminder that like, yo man, at any moment in time you're gone. And then I was just, I got like a second chance, you know, like I was like, Oh my God. And I felt like that honor again of like, I just, you know, that commission slot and I'm going to go to school. I'm not going to mess this up. And I'm not going to drink, you know, all this crap. I was like, I'm not messing this life up. Like I just, like I'm back, you know? And I'm like, no man, like I'm going to crush it. I'm going to try to crush it as much as possible. And it was a bitch fighting a brain injury and the body pains and everything. But I just kept, I just kept going that next year, a year on the date, I qualified for world championships and got fourth place American in the world military tri triathlon championships, which is badass. And so that was the next year. And then, Oh yeah. And, and then I just started like, just going like, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to stop. Like, I'm just going to keep going. Cause not only does my body feel good when I'm running around, but like, I'm going to like kick some ass. And so since then uh, I did a Spartan world championship sprint. I won that. Uh, I was on Ultimate Beastmaster. I won episode 10 and I was on episode uh, one, episode nine, and then got to episode 10. I just filmed American Ninja Warrior a couple days, weeks ago, whatever date it is. Um, I'm the longest serving military triathlete in world history right now. And I can, I plan on repeating that again next year. Um, broke a five minute mile. Pretty good. Um, I was named. Uh, to the NCAA 40th anniversary team as the top athlete in the last 40 years of NCAA history. Um, what else? Wait, is this what you're going for? Stuff like this? Yeah, no, exactly. I think it just illustrates, like I said, you had this, 
you, know, you already had this critical thinking and, and this, you know, physical excellence pre-injury, but now it was amplified by this TBI. So even though there's obviously negative effects of it, you know, you've had this incredible change in in thinking, but you've also had that same application on the physical side as well. Yeah. And adding two kids too, man, which was a huge uh, you know, mental change when I'm no longer this guy running around doing whatever I want. I'm responsible for human beings, you know. It's life changing. So that was a big yeah, it was total life changing, especially because I wanted kids for 20 years when I met my wife, you know. I was I filtered through, I don't know, 50 women. It's like, hey, if you're on the fence, get the get out of here. Like I need kids. I want kids. Like I'm ready to rock and roll. And so uh man, that was a big that was a big deal bringing the little ones into the world, you know, and and stepping up as a man you know, especially handling finances and stuff like that. So yeah, that's a big deal. And then, um, you know, I wanted to really, ex- I wanted to really do the same for my brain that I did for my body. So now that I was able to like, actually like use my brain better, you know, I got my de-stress down. I started learning about supplements a lot, lot better brain training and everything. Like I was like, I have to just do the hardest shit ever. So I did the quantum stuff. I did the AI. I don't know anything about any of this stuff. I just started learning and then just trying to say, okay, I know what my brain is good at. I know what I'm good at. Let me just stay right there and just, and just scale. And then what I was doing was, this is the best part, man, is I'm military. Like I get a paycheck. And so um, usually when people go on LinkedIn and they try to friend people, they want something from them. And for me, like, I'm like, no, man, I learned something when I went to heaven. Like you get rewarded when you do things for other people. And so what I started doing is going on LinkedIn and finding people that had cool things and go, hey, man, I think that if you link up with this other guy or this other gal, like you guys could do something cool. Or I go in and I just message them like, hey, man, is there anything I could do for you? Like you guys, this looks like a really good product. or you looks like a really good company. Hey, I just, you know, I just want to help out. Hey, I see you have an event can I come volunteer? And I go and like volunteer or whatever. And it was just like, they were like, we've never had anybody just come out and just want to help us. Usually they want to sell some shit. And so I was like, Hey, I don't need any money and I don't even care about it. Like I'm going to go out and I befriended so many people. And then in the government, I just invited myself to these big meetings. Like I would find out about these big meetings and I'd be like, Oh, hey, this is, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm looking for the dial-in number and the address, you know, of this meeting that you guys are having. And they just give it to me. And they're like, oh, it's <laughs> a government person. I guess they belong. So I would be, I'd be like sitting in meetings with like generals, <laughs> like executive people and Congress people. And they're like, so what are you doing here? And I'd just be like, well, you know, I think the application of artificial intelligence or whatever subject it was, uh, could be a serious game changer for our military. And I'm here as a warfighter because I did have warfighting experience and multiple deployments. And I'd be like, hey, if we had this shit in Iraq or whatever, you know, we'd probably save a lot of lives. And they'd be like, yeah, I think this guy's right. This guy's great. And they'd be like, hey, we have this other meeting. Can you come here? And then like my LinkedIn is unbelievable. Like I have people that are very, very important. Like you can't touch these people just because I get like, recommendations from their friends like hey this guy ken is awesome like he came out to our event and he wore his uniform and it was cool and he was shaking hands and you know you know he dealt with the kids and like he helped clean up he was in his uniform he was cleaning up pizza boxes like 
people, that's how I was able to make a significant difference as a person in other people's lives. And that's how I got on your very prestigious show as well. It's because like, you know, just doing stuff for people, man, you know, being a good person. And yeah. that's, I think, is my superpower. Yeah, my guest was supposed to be Wesley Snipes. I was really confused. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell him I want Demolition Man too. Damn it, <laughs> he's got to pay his taxes for us. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> All right. Well, one more area before we go to some closing questions and obviously talk about the book and the website. Um, we talked a while ago. Now I want to talk about AI, but before we even get to that part of the internet and you know the the intelligence that is going to be exploding over the next few years we were talking about the division of this country and you know my big thing when it comes to politics for example is i've touched on earlier i think that our system is broken we keep choosing horrible people and that is part of the problem they're very very divisive in these you know two-party systems that we have but you had an interesting perspective as far as out of our country's borders and the influence of that through social media especially so if you wouldn't mind educating us on on that perspective like kind of comparing are you kind of like you know other nations that are happy that. yeah you kind of basically were saying that and we all are kind of aware of this at a very very low level through you know usually news networks and, and whoever but that another nation because to me divide and conquer what i am seeing right now is our nation is 70% obese and overweight. We have people divided a pigeonhole. And there's a lot of good people that ignore all that shit and are good people and love people of all colors, creeds, orientations, and it just get on with their life. But there is this propaganda machine that is not only promoting and making it okay to be on all these pills and be overweight and be an addict and all these other things, but then you have the clickbait and all that division. So you yeah. were hinting on, of course, there are people within our borders that have things to gain when when the people are divided. Like, for example, asking why the fuck do we keep getting these assholes every four years? But that aside, that there are other nations that have a vested interest in America being sick and divided. Yeah, so there's a bunch of things at play here. And number one is for people to understand that you can be mad at a lot of stuff, right? And if you take if you take one thing from watching this all the way through, and I thank anyone who spent two hours of their life with this or an hour and 45 minutes on 1.5 speed, um, you should take that your perspective is your choice and you bring the party. And so if shit sucks around you, it's because you suck and you just don't know better. And so if you constantly bring the party, life's going to be good. But there's only so much where that goes. And you have to understand that American society is not capitalistic. It is pluralistic. And that term means you are supposed to get out what you put in. And so there's a lot of disadvantage with that. And there's a lot of advantage with that. And if you are struggling and you're mad at the way that the society is designed is you just don't know the rules. And the rules is that this is pluralism. And the problem with that is we have a hybrid of we have government mandated stuff that kind of takes away your ability to put in as much as you want. But we incentivize folks to not put in a lot because there are people who need social services and they need a handout. They need it. Some people do, not all of them, 
Okay. Um, so what you have to realize is when you have a pluralistic society, if people don't put in anything, they're just not going to get out anything. But if they're not educated to how to put in so they can get back out, then the system is broke. So if people are being pushed into the system without the knowledge, education, connection, and motivation to put in as much as they can, then the system breaks. So that's the first lesson is to know that you have to learn the rules and just work the rules as hard as you can to get out what you want to put into it. Okay. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that, you know, it's up to you, man, you got to choose and you have to choose your motivation. And so if you're not taught that you need an extreme amount of motivation to take advantage of the system, you're just going to wither away and you're going to be, you're going to get angry and you're going to get mad at the system because you just don't understand it. And you might think it's unfair, but there's other people who have done just fine and have been in worse situations than you probably in worse situations than me and really done well because they just said, you know what? I'm stuck in the system. I'm going to learn the system. I'm going to make it work for me. And so, but they have a different motivating factor. Like I said earlier, no one will starve or be cold or without a bed who I care about. And I care about everybody. And so for me, if I don't wake up tomorrow, absolutely energized, I risk that. And even that's not really logical. It doesn't matter. I don't care. I use that. And I'm on, like, I was in the pool today, getting my ass kicked, man. And I said in there, like, no, I have to do this workout because of this motivating factor. Like, my kids, you know, may not have a warm bed. That's not my motivating factor. I have a different one that I don't prefer to talk about. But it's like, look, like, I am not going to leave this planet without a kick-ass legacy for my kids because it's important to have. And I'm going to win next year if it takes every single day emptying the tank for my kids to have a kick-ass dad legacy, I'm going to do it. And so you need to choose that motivating factor that just lights up your stomach, man. And that's the that's the second most important thing. No the first is you got to put in, you're going to get out what you put in. The second is you need some kind of fire that lights that ass every single day that just will not go out, man. So that's within us. Talk to me about the, the powers from other countries. Oh, yeah. That, that's okay. No, no, because that was a beautiful, I love that. Because part of this conversation is ownership. And the other part of the conversation is the environment. So that's right. We can choose to not be divided. We can choose to to you know it takes a village to actually create that village. But then there are powers that be that are actually trying to keep us separated. Yes. Okay. So yeah. So there are other there are other countries and non non countries that they're just not set up that way, and so. What happens is we have a lot of people in here that just pour in all kinds of effort. We're the greatest civilization in the history of civilization, man. We have everything. Every single app that people use came from America. I mean, like our medicine is, you know, our technology, all that stuff is just, it just sets the benchmarks, man. We have some of the greatest universities. We just have a lot of stuff. And other countries are very upset about that. And they view, they think that we've fixed the system. Well, we built the system. So yeah, it's fixed by us, right? And so the, someone had to do it. And after World War II, we were the only 
person standing. And so what people don't understand is the the ensuing years after World War II created this planet, man. Like if you don't know political sciences, we have have a hard time understanding this. But we created all of the international laws and regulations and standards that the whole damn world follows and the whole world agreed to let America do this. And there's this thing called the Bretton Woods Agreement. And what America did was they said, look, all you guys need to rebuild your countries because you're all you're all destroyed. We will protect the planet. We are going to protect all the international trade because international trade equals wealth. And we will build and maintain the world military and protect everything for everybody else. And so now it's 2023 and, you know, that's really not super relevant anymore. So you have China, Russia, you have all these other people who are actively undermining America because they are trying to subvert that system so that they can now be the ones in charge. And poor, poor thing with Russia is, man, they, you know, they won World War II, but they kind of lost. I mean, they lost, they lost like 50 million people. It was insane, man. And their whole entire country got gutted. And so they're really upset about that. And China got a really bad stake too, man. I mean, God, what the Japanese did to the Chinese were some cases worse than what the Germans did. And so you have these people who who have these pasts that they're trying to write, like me. You know, I had this past of homelessness and all this stuff. And I just was like, hell no, I'm going to be the best. And so they have, they're trying to do that too. And so the way that they can do that is divide and conquer, right? I mean, they make up a lot of this drama that you see on social media. It's made up. It's actually just created by some Russians who are sitting in some shed in the middle of nowhere creating these social bullshit things that you see and you're like, oh my God, America screwed up. No, man, people making this crap up and the Chinese are doing it too. They're exfiltrating all of our secrets and our hard work that people are putting in and like that's the way that they're equalizing. And so people need to be careful about the stuff that you see. And really the fall of, I think the fall of division, or the creation of division in this country is when, when news became commercialized 24-7. And so, oh my God, do they have to do something with 24 hours in the day, man? I can't believe it. I wake up 4 a.m. I see, I go to the gym, I see some crap on the TV. 4 p.m. It's the same damn thing. I'm like, They've just been recycling this crap all day and it's all just garbage, man. Like it's so much trash. And I'm just like, you do realize like you're programming human beings. This is school. You go to school for six hours, seven hours out of the day and your brain is being molded. I mean, you watch news for 20 minutes, man. I mean, that is programming at a high level because it's an emotional charge and they're selling ads. People like they're sucking your attention so they can sell an ad for some company that's trying to make you buy something. And if they can, I'm telling you, this is an actual thing. They sell ads by the emotional charge of the event that the ad is interrupting. So if it is a murder, they will charge higher rates to that ad for that company to run at that time because you're emotionally charged and you're more apt to absorb that ad and then subconsciously act on it later. This is science, people. Okay. Does that, I hope that like addresses what you're asking. <laughs> no, it does. It does. It's funny because now almost 800 conversations, like there's all these, these, uh, you know, as I say, the Venn diagram is crossing over and there's this truth in the middle. I had a, a very, very well, you know, respected and revered journalist from, you know, yesteryear, Larry Doyle. 
And he was, mm. for example, to give the level of trust that he had, he was the first person to interview Nelson Mandela when he got out of Robben Island, that kind of wow. journalist. And so I asked him, and it was the same thing, because again, when you come from another country, and my country has the BBC, which I've always respected, and to this day, is it perfect? No, but I think it's very... You know, very, this is what happened, the end. We don't need to interview people that were on the street an hour later asking them what they think about it or divide the screen into four assholes and get them to argue for it and call that news. This this is the actual news. But Larry was saying this exactly what you touched on, which is the news used to be funded by other things so they could focus on being the news. And the moment there was a change in the corporation and they asked the news to start generating income, that's when you got this new sensationalist, you know, clickbait, divisive news that we see today. And when you take a step back and exactly what you just said, that they can put a higher tab in the middle of a school shooting. That's right. That should yep. nauseate everyone to the point where they don't watch CNN or Fox or any of these ones anymore. Yeah. And, and you know what, too, is like one of the realizations I had in my life was just everything's fake. I, I, I just walk around and this might not be true, but it works for me to protect myself is everything I see on TV, on Instagram. Oh God, Instagram, uh, YouTube, whatever. It's just fake. And I, I have personal experiences and professional experiences that have proven that it's almost the opposite of whatever you're seeing some person doing or telling you to do or telling you that they do. They're actually doing the opposite. Like, I mean, especially when it comes to like drug use and, you know, like their workouts, you're not doing that workout every week. Matter of fact, you're not doing that workout every month or even every quarter. You're just posting that shit online. And like people will do this like for workouts and stuff like and fasting and nutrition. They will they will do like a week or they'll, they'll go through weeks and weeks of content and they and then they strategically release them over the course of a certain amount of time making you think that, oh, they did this on Monday, they did this on Tuesday, they did this on Wednesday or whatever. No, bullshit. That took them a year to do. Like, and, it, and it's just creating this false reality in Europe. And the crazy part is there, is there is this phenomenon that people use in psychology and in negotiations that know that it is impossible for you to not compare yourself to someone that you're watching or listening to. You will do it you cannot, just like I say, don't see a pink elephant. You automatically see a pink elephant. When you see someone like doing 100 push-ups, you have to go, oh, I'll never be able to do that. They they manipulate you this way by showing you some guy with an eight-pack who's taking this supplement, and you're like, shit, I don't have an eight-pack. And then, But you may not be consciously aware of it. You're like, need to take pills for eight-pack. Need to take pills to work out. And then you're at the grocery store and you see like, you know, like this, what's the, what's the uh, collagen supplement? You know, your body doesn't use that. It cannot ingest it. It cannot use it in ingestible format, but they'll $70 for a bottle of collagen supplement. It's like, oh, let me take this. Maybe I'll get a pack. And they're just manipulating your entire subconscious. And I did, I went like three years in learning neuro-linguistic programming, watching Darren Brown, doing pattern interrupts on people. And so I have a very intimate understanding of how people can influence your subconscious and your decisions weeks and months later by something that you do now. 
And I mean, even like the colors that they use in the words and they will misspell things on purpose because your brain stops and goes, oh, that's misspelled. And that's the way they insert that product into your subconscious. So when you're at the store or you're online or whatever, you're like, well, for some reason I like this. So you just try it, you know, this with two S crazy, man. (laughs) So just pulling some of the positives from science, um, Someone, I can't remember who it was now. I wish I could remember, but I think it was Lee. Well, Lee Sammartino, if I'm not mistaken. But um, they were talking about AI and and how incredible that technology is going to be. And I've actually started using it to do um, transcripts for the show. And and uh, I've got chat GPT, which I'm still yep. trying to figure out how that works in my world, but I'm being patient. Um, but he said, for example, imagine if, you know, and this is, this is starting to happen now, whether it's a... a traditional medicine whether it's a mental health screening you could actually do a an interview with an ai and then that information goes to a physician so when you walk through the door it's like okay it looks like ken that this is going on and obviously you'd be a bad example because you know you've got so many different things james it looks like irritable bowel (laughs) and small penis syndrome so then (laughs) then you don't have to do the you know that use nine and a half of the 10 minutes doing your primary secondary and then you've got 30 seconds to go fuck it i'll just give you some pills now you can actually walk through and almost immediately go okay let's break it down you know you're you know you hypertensive and you know your cholesterol is off let's start what are you eating how are you moving? And you could actually now use that time in a more holistic fashion. So to me, that's one of the most exciting things about AI. Yes, it's awesome to get ask it to turn to make a picture of ten squirrels, you know, in ninja suits. That also has application. But w- talk to me about <laughs> <laughs> about the world of AI. Most of us have seen the very tip of the iceberg. What is the world that you're seeing with your incredible mind and vision? Okay, so first, um, medicine, I, is, I think, is going to be a, a long time. So, but I think there's going to be a couple of silos of excellence. But I, I will tell people, I'll go on record. You're not going to see, you're not going to see your general practitioner. You're not going to be going in front of no AI script or anything like that. Because first off, they spent 15 or 20 years in medical school not learning a damn thing about technology. And there's no way they're going to risk lawsuits or complications in their medical practice by instilling some technology that they don't thoroughly understand. Because if you think of medical professionals are absolutely crucial on their knowledge of what they're saying and doing. Now, they're very curious people, uh, but the problem is they are totally owned by their insurance. And they just, I'm just going to tell you, Logically, you and me, it makes sense. If I was an entrepreneur, shit, let's do it. Let's do this medical, you know, diagnosis, you know, AI. But if you go on ChatGPT and try to do anything medical, you're going to get disclaimer, 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 disclaimer. It's going to be totally useless. And it is almost absolutely useless. I have to go in and trick it. And I have a video on how to use ChatGPT correctly. So if you guys want to go on my Air Force Ken channel, you can do it. It's got like 10,000, 20,000 hits. I don't know. But it's a pretty good lesson on how to talk to it. So you have to trick it in order to even get even anywhere close because any company that's producing AI that's doing any type of medical stuff, oh my God. Anyway, so for what I see is um, I see creation is going to be very, very uh, disrupted. And so 
the creative aspect, not so much the logical aspect. So the if you think about the timeline of invention, someone has to think of it. And in order to think of something new or novel, it's a component of a multiple different things. Your ability to be creative is directly resultant by how many different experiences you've had. So if you're only doing like one or two things, you're not going to be a super duper creative person. If you've been all over the place, read all kinds of books, you're going to be ultra creative because you're combining all these elements. And that's what AI is going to do for you. If you think of ChatGPT, for example, which is all the rage, you go on there and basically you have access to a person that has 170,000 PhDs. Like, that's a great friend. You go in there and be like, you know, what's this thing about and that thing about? And then you have a separate conversation about another thing. And you can learn almost master's level stuff in the course of like an hour or two. So if you're a musician and you want to come up with like, let's say, a track that will teach people how to do, say, uh, trigonometry and you want to make a song that's 12 minutes long and you want to teach someone a chapter on trigonometry, ChatGPT will do that for you. And that's game-changing shit because music and the power of music in your memory is absolutely unbelievable. And so like, that's what I, that's where I see AI is going to be an unbelievable in your ability to fuse multi disciplines into one and create something super duper novel. Uh, because only a human can do that. I don't care about AI and how awesome it is. It's not even remotely close to the human brain and human uh, experience. So that's that's like the biggest thing. And you're going to see that. And you're already seeing that now, like business ideas and all that stuff. And so I throw in like, I, you know, I write papers or whatever. I'll throw it in there and go, hey, just reword this 10 different ways. And it'll go in there, reword it. I'm like, hey, that that sentence right there, man, I didn't think about that. And I'll take that sentence and put it in my document or whatever. And so that's, that is incredible. And AI for uh, doing things a little bit more intently. So designing products that are better packaged, designing products that don't have planned obsolescence, because that's another thing that you're being scammed on, but like creating things that are just way more intuitive house designs. I see architecture being a lot more like environmentally, you know, sensitive where it uses less energy and how do we design air conditioning systems that are a little bit better and design is going to be huge in environmental impact is going to be a big deal with people leveraging AI. I know you're, I don't want to have you fall asleep out here so long. No, no, that was <laughs> brilliant though. It's exciting. It is. It, it is super exciting. And I'm just trying to figure out, you know, because I'm I'm writing a, a second book at the moment. It's a fiction and I don't even want to go there. I want to use my old fashioned brain with my slow ass processes. But um, and you're wiggling your finger at me. So educate me. Yes. So um, what you're doing is you're kind of like, I'm sticking with long division to show my work. <laughs> There's absolutely nothing wrong with using ChatGPT or large language models or any other type of AI for your creative endeavors, because simply you just don't have the time. If you want to write a story about like Nordic, you know, experiences with golf, I mean, that's because you've been there and done that, right? You have that domain. What, what large language models will allow you to do is, is, totally flatten that learning curve so that it doesn't take you 10 or 15 years to gain experience to write a book. It'll take you 10 to 15 hours. And so you absolutely should go in there and go, hey, what are some, you know, what, what's your book about? 
Um, it's going to be about multi-generational trauma and the modern day protagonist will be a firefighter. Okay. Perfect. So multi-generational trauma, the most, the quintessential example of that is Rwanda. And so in Rwanda, they had a genocide about 25 or 30 years ago, 20, I have to look it up. Um, but there's now the women who were part of the genocide that were pregnant during the genocide had kids. Okay. And so their DNA, as they were walking around, and you can do this in ChatGPT, is, is go in and, and as I'm dropping these nuggets for you, go in and, and learn about how genetics is passed, is actually passed from the grandmother to the grandchild, not the mother. You do know that, right? You're Okay, good. At least you know that. So your grandmother is actually your mother, people. But anyway, so it skips a generation. And so the children of the children that came from these pregnant women who were part of the genocide, the best ones for this study was the women who had, who were, had sisters of the same clan who left Rwanda and were not subjected to the genocide. And then there was a pregnant woman in that same tribe who was there, who then had a kid, their trauma was passed to the kid. And now they're having kids. And now scientists are studying the genetic alterations between the six of them. So you have the three grandma, the, the mother and the child of the of the woman who was not part of the genocide. And then the three who are part of the genocide and they're combining the DNA code and they're going, holy shit, this trauma was actually passed two generations down and just seeing which which areas were were different. And so using the large language model will have ingested all of that. And so you can go in there and go, this is very interesting. You know, how does the, you know, how is the child, you know, the trauma affected and you can go in there and you can take what took people 30 years to understand. You could do that in 30 minutes, which is incredible. And then you can go in, well, I don't understand this, this thing and go in and go even deeper because just this content matter in there and you can like write something that is so unbelievably amazing that the world has never even seen of it because you can go down all these rabbit holes of like, I mean, I can, I can go down a shitload of rabbit holes with you to tell you how to talk to chat, chat GPT and find out more information, but you should 100% use it to its maximum event, but you have to know how to talk to it, have to, have to know how to, how to make it, do what you want it to do. So it doesn't give you all these, you know, generic responses and, and stupid little disclaimers that are annoying. Do you understand? Does that make sense? No, it does. Absolutely. And I'm not only going to watch your YouTube video, I will put it on the show notes on uh, jamesgearing.com for this episode <laughs> as well. So people can, cool. can find it there. Well, we've been chatting for two and a half hours. I want to go to some closing questions. The first thing I want to ask, the state of being is your new book you just released this year. So talk to me yeah. about, you've got you've got some other books prior. So talk to me about this book, why you wrote it, and then where people can find all your books. Yeah, sure. So um, the only one in that's like honestly published is The State of Being. It's on Amazon. You can find it. It's, uh, it's published on demand. So you can go in there and you get it like three days or four days or whatever. Um, the state of being is basically, it, um, it explains how your nervous system communicates to you. And so like that example that people don't even really know your body gets the aches when you get the flu, it's because you're contagious and it wants you in bed away from other people. Okay. Uh, the coughing, all that other stuff is, is ways to notify society that you're contagious and everything. You don't have to do any of that stuff. 
So it teaches you on how to listen to your nervous system and go, oh, okay, I know why this is happening so that you can heal yourself. And it really is coming from a state of stress into a state of being in contentment and in, in internal awareness. And so the entire book is designed to train you on how to speak the language of your nervous system, because not only does the nervous system talk to you, but you communicate to it. So if you're eating a lot of like sugars and stuff, it's thinking that you need bursts of energy and that maybe you're, you're, you know, you're hunting versus gathering, right? If you're eating a lot of fat, you're gathering and, you know, it's going to operate differently. So I teach you on how to choose not only like your diet and mental visual visualization is a big one so that you can communicate to your nervous system on how, if you want to go from A to B. Uh, the biggest thing to take out of there is um, I think a lot of pain and suffering is people not living what they're here to do. And so people will get stressed out because they're fighting against their um, purpose in life. And so I really like, I love asking people like, you know, if you could do anything, what would it be? And it's usually always something different than what they're doing. And I'm like, why don't you just do that? Like you're, that's your calling, man. Like you were put on this planet to do that awesome thing. And every day that goes by that you don't do it, your nervous system is going to fight you because you're not doing what it was designed to do. And so the state of being has a large section on how to discover what's good for you. And there's little, little tricks too, because when you think about something that is not in alignment with your nervous system, your nervous system restricts you. So if you think of people like being able to touch their toes, that's like my signature move is you think of something and you touch your toe, touch, try to touch your toes. There'll be a stopping point. And then if you think of something else and you go to touch your toes and you go further, then you know that's in alignment with your nervous system. So if you're like, hey, I have a decision I need to make, I need to you know, live in this, this state and do this thing or live in this state, all you have to do is ask yourself that, think about it, and then do a certain move that taxes your nervous system, then you can know the answer. It's pretty interesting stuff, but you can learn what your calling is that way and you can be in a better state of being that way. Brilliant. And, and you said that was on Amazon? That's right. It's on Amazon. You just put in my last name and you'll find it or just put in state of being. I'm hoping I'm high enough up there to I will be the uh, the hit if you do state of being. Brilliant. Now talk to me about the podcast and where people can find that. Yeah, sure. So I'm the host of the Warrior Gamer podcast, which is a gaming podcast. Um, we focus on mental health through the avenue of gaming and esports, which is a really good pathway. A lot of people choose. And so we just help them choose a balance because like anything, um, there's a there's a point where there's too much and there's a point where there's too little. Um, when I got my injury, I demanded my insurance company buy me an Xbox Connect so that I could move my body and use my brain at the same time. And it was a huge uh, influence in getting my body reconnected with my mind. And so I'm very passionate about what gaming can do, not only with disadvantaged communities, um, but the industry is going to be badass soon. And I will tell you, it's going to take over and already really has it's, it's, I think it's the biggest industry in the world right now, uh, even bigger than movies, um, and, and music. And so, uh, there will be a convergence of the metaverse and visual in, um, virtual reality and gaming, and it's going to be pretty awesome. And that's where I've put my play, put myself. Brilliant. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Brendan was one that connected us. I just want to talk about Transcend Foundations for a moment. So how did you find yourself there? Yeah, sure. So um, I went to a Veterans Day event uh, in D.C. 
Um, and it was awesome. And they were a sponsor of the event and, um, the event, um, is sponsored by a, a charity that is taking World War II vets and Korean War vets uh, and telling their stories and keeping them uh, alive forever. And so they record their stories, and it's, it's incredible. They've won so many awards, uh, American Veterans Center. And so um, they were there, and they're amazing. And I told them, you know, that I just, over the past many, many years, uh, kept getting injured. And they were like, hey, man, have you run your blood panel um i said no uh, my doctor's never asked that and they're like and they're like your doctor's not gonna do this stuff so they ran my blood panel for free and found that i was operating on like one tenth of the hormones that i should be um not only as an athlete but as a human and they're like dude there's are you bed <laughs> i remember the doctor calling me like because he didn't know anything he was like are you bedridden i was like no man i'm training right now what's wrong with you and he's like really like you're not you're not going to heal at all and so um what's interesting is a common side effect of brain injury is hormonal dysfunction and so the body won't is won't produce those hormones for years because under stress your body just depletes the adrenal core you know adrenal gland and you're just hosed the, your whole body's hosed and so they put me on a protocol and it was like incredible and it was like new calm times two now i got i had my brain back now i have my body back and now I have, I am proud to announce with Transcend and Nucom, like I have no TBI symptoms. Uh, it's pretty amazing shit. And um, I, I owe my life to them and they added me to the board of directors and I am honored to serve and we're going to heal a lot of people. And the, the foundation brings in vets that have um, complicated PTS and we give them the um, the treatments for free, which is, which is a very high calling absolutely i was telling uh brandon that what i what i love about them having seen them walk the walk with so many nonprofits. i mean they were one of the sponsors of 7x when i went around with some special operations guys around the world yeah. recently um <laughs> which was incredible what i'm seeing is a predatorial element to the testosterone market where we've gone from one extreme, which was doctors saying, you're fine, you're in this, this, you know, parameters, and the parameters were that low was the 80-year-old dude in the study, not the 20-year-old operator. That's right. But now we've gone the other way, well, basically, they'll bend over backwards to prove that you need their shit, and now you're paying thousands and thousands, and a lot of these people, probably nutrition, exercise, sleep, can get their hormones back to where they need to be. But then you have that group, whether it's, you know, transcends other supplements or whether it's the TRT, that they are an American firefighter and they're not going to really get any sleep anytime soon until we change the system. Or they have TBIs or, you know, these other elements where it is absolutely then when you've eliminated the other or you've addressed the other holistic elements where TRT and other treatments are applicable and what I want to do, I'm hoping to partner with them, is to say, all right, this is a company that I trust. If you're going yeah. to go that route, these are the people that you need to go through. So I'm hoping that down the road, you know, I can have uh, more of their people on as guests and ultimately bring them to this this uh, audience. Yeah, 100%. Um, Phil Heath and I, uh, seven-time Mr. Olympia, we became pretty good friends. He's on the board too. And uh, we, we've been talking about this, man. There's predatory everything everywhere. You just got to protect yourself. Remember, everyone's just trying to fleece you, man. And so 
what I've done with my life is surround myself with good people who just want to do good things and rack up videos in the end of their life, right? And so I'm at the point where all of the people around me now are that. They want to rack up great videos at the end of their life. And so Transcend is full of them. And what people have to understand is um, the the thing at a certain point, you can't heal yourself, man. Like they're, 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 you're, you're just past the point where you cannot overcome the challenges that you have, that you need people, a support group, always. You always need a support group. But sometimes to get you to get you back a little bit off of the edge, you need a little bit of help. And that's what New Home helped for me. And that's what Transcend helped for me too, is I was so far past the point of recovery, self-recovery, that my it just wasn't there. And so what people, what I want people to understand is it's probably not your fault. Like, I mean, like you need help. You need to get someone and some people to intervene. You need to get a support group and you may need some type of protocols. You may need the neuroacoustics from Newcom. Like this is a everyday thing for me now, man. Like it's, I mean, for me, it's like you eat, you gotta eat, you gotta poop, you gotta drink. That might not be the only thing you have to have. Like I have to de-stress. I have to meditate. I have to do mental visualization. Like, and so it's just part of my life now, man. I mean, for me, like I have to hold my kids. Otherwise I don't feel right at the end of the day. And so it's just like not eating. And so like people need, they need to understand it's okay to go out and seek assistance, but make sure just like getting advice needs to be the right people. And these are the right people. If you go, if you connect with me, I'm going to get you the right people and they're going to care and you know, they're not out for the dollar. Absolutely. Well, I'll just throw one of the closing questions and then we'll go to where everyone can find you and the websites. Is there a person or are there people that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Um, You know, like I shoot big, man. So I would go for the director of the VA. I mean, go big, go big or go home. And and really because people like poo-poo that organization a lot. And if you found out how complicated it is to run that thing and to do the right thing and that there are people in there trying to do the right thing, and if you get his or her perspective on whoever you can get up the chain, I think it'll help people understand, uh, you know, just like we talked about medical system and, you know, what you're up against, just know what you're up against. You know, if you're part of the VA, man, like, you got to understand what you're dealing with. And I think that would be a really, I think that would be a great guest to tell you the truth. Absolutely. All right. Well, then we've talked about the book. We talked about the podcast, the website, where can people find you on online? And then where can people find you on social media? Yeah, sure. So if you know, I'm in the air force and my name is Ken, like Ken and Barbie, if you just Google air force, Ken, you'll find me. You can also go to uh, Ken uh, That's where I keep my bio. I got to update that. Um, but yeah, you Google me. And by the way, uh, I answer every single message that's ever sent to me. I don't care how popular I will get. Uh, I will answer every single one. And if you need help or you just want to shoot the breeze, I'll be there, man. I I know where I came from and I'm always going to be there. I'm just like, I'm just like you, man. Just like one of us. Absolutely. And what about social media? You want any of them? Yeah. Air Force Ken. Everything's Air Force Ken. Fantastic. 
Well, Ken, we have been chatting for over two and a half hours. It has been an amazing conversation. Like I said, I feel like I've scraped the surface of your your story, but there's so much depth and so many interesting tangents that, that you found yourself within your life. But I just want to be, you know, just say thank you for being so generous with your time today and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast. Yeah, man, I'm gonna go up, give my kids hugs and kisses while they sleep. And that'll be my reward for tonight. And um, I appreciate everything, man. Like, this is a big deal. I want to be a host one day. I want to replace Joe Rogan one day as a host. And uh, you're, you're, just, uh, you're just polishing me up, man. And, and I appreciate the opportunity. 